All right, guys. Uh, welcome to another edition of the Culture Class Podcast, the podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds, uh, get to learn about other cultures and all that fun stuff. Today, I have a really special guest uh, on the episode today. Let me see if y'all can, well, I guess y'all already see the title of the episode, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> but welcome to the episode, LD. Thank you for having me, man. Sure. How's the quarantine life uh, treating you? It's uh, interesting. Um, my wife and I were just talking about that the the other day. Not that much different from how we lived previously. Oh, you guys um, are entrepreneurs. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, I've been working from home for, I don't know, maybe three years plus. Um, she works from home as well. She's a real estate agent. So she's a realtor. She likes to correct me. She's not a real estate agent, but she's a realtor. What's the a difference? difference. <laughs> so apparently a realtor is like a registered, um, real estate, um, a licensed real estate person. I don't know the okay. details of it, but it's supposed to be like a licensed real estate person who is recognized by the association of realtors versus an agent who's just someone who has a certification. Oh, so an agent is a gang and a realtor is the police, basically. <laughs> something, something <laughs> like that, I guess. <laughs> okay, well, well, thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate that you've taken out time to do this. Um, LD, well, where do I start? I mean, a lot of people listening to this podcast are Nigerians, but I also have people listening from all over the world. So um, hopefully you guys can discover, get to discover about LD, his music, all that fun stuff. Uh, LD is one of the foremost musicians, or should I, should I say retired? I mean, you go out of retirement every yeah. now and then, but you end up coming back. So should I say retired for now? That's interesting. I've never actually had someone put it that way, is that you go out of retirement and then you come back. Um, I have actually, well, technically I've only retired once, but I, I used to like step away for a few years and then mm. come back, step away for a few years and then come back. So yeah, uh, that's maybe that's cool. what it was like, kind of like stepping away, but it almost felt like you step away for like three, four years and you get that itch and come back and, like, and then come back, get into yeah. the music scene again. But LD is a Nigerian musician, uh, one of the early proponents of Afrobeats, which is a genre that's, you know, really popular all over the world right now. But, you know, LD has what, like a 20, 21 year career. In music? Um, well, if you're counting up till now, then yeah. Um, but really, I think it was 16 years at the time when I quit. Um, and that was in 2012. Got it. Got it. Mm-hmm. Got it. Wait, you quit in 2012? I thought it was like in 2016 or something. It was actually 2012. Yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> time flies, man. Yeah. <laughs> time flies. Um, LD has had quite a lot of interviews over his uh, you know, music career, you know, talking about his music. Uh, fans obviously know about him, know about the group he started tribesmen, the tribe back home in Nigeria, uh, about, you know, everything he's done in the entertainment business. Uh, But what I want to really talk about today is trying to peel back the layers and talk to LD, the man. So there are a lot of things that your fan really don't know about you. And maybe we can get to unearth some of those information uh, today. So fingers crossed, we'll see what happens. All right. And yeah, let's let's talk about early. I mean, you, you weren't really necessarily LD, even though I know those are your initials, but growing up when you were just Lanre or, or Lanre Waju, growing up in, in Kaduna, what were some of your, like your earliest memories uh, growing up in Northern Nigeria? Uh, what, what, how many siblings did you have growing up and what were some of the activities you remember yourself indulging in? Like, did you go out to ride your bikes in the streets? Did you play games with people in your neighborhood? All that kind of stuff. So I grew up in 
in Kaduna, in the, on the south side of Kaduna um, initially, um, in a place called Barnawa. Now, Barnawa is like, um, I guess, compared to like the U.S. would be like a suburb. Um, it was not like in the city center, so, you know, we could ride bikes. We actually used a skateboard. Um, really? Yeah. <laughs> in the 80s in Nigeria? Yeah. Okay. It was a thing. Uh, break dancing, break dancing, you know, skateboarding, um, definitely riding bicycles. I had pretty much every type of bike that there was because I guess that was like my reward um, for my mom for like, you know, being so great at schoolwork. BMX, Grifter. Um, oh, I remember the BMXs. Did you ever <laughs> try the... The chopper, the... Did you ever um, try the stunts and stuff with the bikes? Oh, yeah. I mean, who didn't, right? It was, like, <laughs> you know, you planks together, you try to do crazy things that you're seeing on TV. And and back then, also growing up in Kaduna, um, we were, I guess, one of the earlier folks that actually started watching satellite TV, right? Mm. And satellite TV, there was a lot that we learned from the culture, you know, from Western culture, um, having the exposure so early, right? I can imagine this was when satellite TV was pretty expensive and you had the large dish mounted to the roof kind of thing. Right, right. Well, you you can put it on the roof. It was was like a thing (laughs) that just sat in your yard, this gigantic, you know, dish or whatever. Got it. Um, But... You know, we had we had early access, so there was a lot of that influence, uh, which is probably why we were skateboarding, um, if I remember correctly. We definitely rode bicycles. Um, I mean, we did things that normal Nigerian kids did or do. Well, I guess they don't anymore. But no, man, growing up, kids <laughs> have a whole different experience now, like with Instagrams and and whatnot. Like it's a whole different thing now. Now kids want want to do at uh, fourteen and thirteen things. Right. Don't have time right. to be kids anymore. But would you say you were an outgoing kid when you were younger? Were you like shy? Were you reserved? Were you like creative, just you know, being drawing in your room, that kind of thing? Or you were like outgoing, like interacting with other kids, chasing girls, that kind of thing? I was definitely creative. Um, I started off actually just making comic books. Mm. Um, so I used to make comic books. That's like my earliest memories. Of, well, actually, that's not my earliest. I started off dancing. Um, so I was a dancer as a kid. And then I started making comic books um, and really developed my ability to like sketch and draw and paint. And um, I had actually had a series comic series that i created i don't remember what the title is my daughter was asking me yesterday i don't remember but um you know i did a lot of that you know sketching voltron and sketching like trying to draw out the the, the various lines um thunder sub whatever else was out there um i did all of that and then i moved on to um again because of the influence of you know music and we started watching MTV and UMTV raps and lots of hip hop. And I guess that's what we could relate to um, of all of the channels. Um, so there was a lot of influence from there. And that's how kind of we got into like the music side of things. And then also being into getting into the music side of things, um, we spent a lot of time um, learning about the culture, right? So it was, it was the stories. It was, you know, how Flavor Unit, for example, came together. You know, Flavor Unit was like a crew back then, um, Queen Latifah, Lords, leaders of the New School, Tripod Quest, and so many other groups that used to all kind of like work together. Um, so there's Flavor Unit, there's LONS, there's Tribe, there's all of these different um, groups. And just watching them all come together and create those crews, what I think was really exciting for us. And that, I feel like, is what led me on the path that I ended up on. But from a creativity standpoint, um, I think from a very early age, I figured that 
anything that I really put my mind to, I could do really well. So whether it's dancing or drawing or sketching, painting, um, you know, or rapping or, or making beats or just anything, you know, so. Why, why do most musicians or specifically rappers start off as comic book artists? Like, is there a card? Maybe someone needs to do a study of, of how the drawing comic books kind of like develops the right side of your brain to later have a promising career as a, as a rapper. But almost every single artist or DJ or, uh, you know, just creative I've seen said they started drawing off comic books. Maybe that was like the a low barrier to entry. All you need is like a pen and a paper and that's how you can express yourself. And maybe that translates itself to uh, spoken word later on in your life. But Could talk be. to... Talk to me about growing up in that part of Nigeria specifically. So from what I understand and from your name, uh, you're from Lagos State. You're from Southern Nigeria, right? My parents Um, are from, yeah. Or your parents are from Southern. Your parents are from Southern Nigeria and you are this guy growing up in Northern Nigeria. Of course, you are pretty young and maybe might not have understand some of the social dynamics surrounding like... um, I don't know, like the different cultures and tribalism and, you know, classism, things like that. But was there any point when you were much younger, this is like when you were, you know, less than 10 years old, where you just felt a sense of, you didn't feel a sense of belonging or, you know, Nigeria was just different at that time and it was a more peaceful kind of like environment to grow up? I guess when you grow up in it, you don't notice it as much, but as you grit, as you get older, it starts becoming like very obvious, right? Um, And this is not to say that, I want to make sure that I phrase this correctly. This is not to say that you weren't welcome as a Southerner in the North, right? It's just, there are differences in the culture and there are nuances that suggest, you know, that one group is better than the other, right? And there are nuances of, hey, I'm superior to you, because you're not from where I'm from, right? But then again, I was born in Zaria. I grew up in Kaduna. So when you, you don't see those things as a kid, right? And, and kids really, in reality, kids don't even know the difference, right? It's when True. you guys grow up True. and then- Those things are know, taught, yeah. Exactly. So they start to learn the behaviors from their parents or whoever it is. It's like, oh, don't play with these kids, play with those kids. Don't bring these kids around, you know, that type of thing. So um, when you guys are like getting into your teens, then you start to notice the gang, the cliques, you know, the little you know nuances here and there. It's like, oh, you don't speak Hausa, so you can't be part of this group or you don't or you're not Hausa or you're not Muslim or you're Igbo. You know what I mean? So all of yeah. those things started to kind of um, rear their heads. And unfortunately, um, a lot of the um, intolerance was becoming even more obvious by the things that were happening, right? So there were all these religious um, riots where, you know, it, it became evident that it was just an opportunity for, you know, certain groups to go out and loot and kill and pillage uh, from others. And that actually forced a lot of people away from the North. Um, I remember correctly in the 90s, I actually had two near-death experiences. Wow. Um, grow up, growing up in Kaduna in my fine, like, last two years. You know, living oh, like as a teenager? Yeah, as a teenager. I mean, I'll, t- I'll tell you about one of them, but it's, it's, it's really interesting. You know, again, it's taught, so I didn't notice as a kid growing up. I think it was starting to kind of show itself. 
um, even in, in, in secondary school, because I, I went to a school that was quite in, international, really, by Nigerian standards. Essence International was owned by an American. It was actually an American school, like, period, right? And most of the folks who were in the school were kids of the elite, right? So it was the military folks. It was the governors. At the, as, as a matter of fact, there was a time when there were probably like 16 or 17 of Nigeria's governors. Their kids were in my school. Wow. And for context, Nigeria has 36 states. So <laughs> right. that's like half right. the country's governors were. Exactly. Had their kids schooling. You know, you. schooling there. So it was, it was a lot of like powerful, influential, you know, people that were there. So even at that level, to experience tribalism, um, to experience... Um, some some form of segregation because really that's what it it, it became at some point mm. um, was really interesting you know at at fifteen I started to understand some of the things that I was watching on MTV about racism right because I understood the the struggle the African American struggle and now I could relate it somewhat to um, you know being Yoruba or at least my parents being Yoruba um, and growing up in the north where I speak Hausa. For all intents, people used to think that I was Hausa because I kind of look Hausa, right? But there was still that difference, right? When she meant, when they, oh, what's your name? Your name is not Abdul or Muhammad or, you know, then, you know, you just, you notice like hesitation. You notice like, oh, okay, they put you in a box and then now you don't fit in. And then now, you know what I mean? So, yeah. And then, and then the riots started to happen and we started to talk about these things. And then I started to get like the various perspectives on the things that were happening. Mm -hmm. So depending on what side of the, you know, tribal issues you were, you know, you had varying perspectives. So for example, um, there are folks who are from the southern parts of Kaduna states, and most of them are Christian. A lot of people don't even know that Kaduna state is actually really more the, the original, the indigents of Kaduna, for the most part, are Christian, right? North of Kaduna, going Zaria and up, that's where it's mostly like house and Fulani, right? But what happened over the years is somehow the houses, because I guess they're more, when you think about, you know, Kaduna Kano and all the other states um, were more in the positions of power and they ran pretty much everything that was going on in that. And Kaduna was the seat of power, like even from way before independence, right? This is where Lord Lagarde actually was located. This is mm. where Nigeria was created. Like the whole concept of Nigeria came from Kaduna, right? Mm. Um, so a lot of the, so the power, the seat of power was Kaduna, even when the capital was Lagos, like all everything was decided in Kaduna, right? And 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 I guess the point I'm trying to make is there was a lot of there was a lot of that um, heavy political presence, right? And starting to see how all of that actually impacts the average person who isn't Hausa in the north or even anywhere else in the country was was quite um, eye opening, so to speak, mm. right? And like I said, I, I started relating some of that back to what was going on, what I was learning as a kid. Um, on satellite you know, TV. On, on satellite TV. And then asking questions about people from the southern parts of Nigeria who, I mean, of, of Kaduna, who were mostly Christians and how they were kind of being segregated. Um, and then I started to notice that they even lived in a certain part of the, of the city, right? Of Kaduna, like the city itself. Geographically, they were, Geographically, they were one like part more, of the city. They were like more in the south, which is where I lived in Bernal, mm -hmm. right? And more north, it was more... House of people in the north. Now the dynamics may have changed today, so anybody who's listening, you know, may have you know a different opinion on that. But at the time, 
it was like night and day. As a matter of fact, when the riots began, there's a bridge that connects Kaduna North to the South. Okay. And that usually would be where it would deadlock, right? Because mostly to the North was the houses and then to the South where the non-houses and the fights usually were between houses and the non-houses. The non-houses. Did you, so, did, did, did near that experience uh, that you said you experienced, did it have to do with any of the riots that took place back then? Yeah. Yes, it did. So basically we lived, um, you know, in the South of the city and my school was in the North. Um, and, you know, we would cross the bridge to go North. There's a bridge that connects, you know, the Northern part of Kaduna to the Southern part of Kaduna. So we would cross that bridge going to school and back, um, every day. And that bridge, you know, like I said earlier, was kind of the separation of the Northern parts, which is mostly Hausa, and then the Southern parts, which is mostly, um, you know, the non-Hausa. Um, and, and I don't want to call everybody like one tribe. There are various tribes that make up Southern Kaduna. So I don't even want to mention any now before I mess it up. But um, Christian South, Muslim North, right? Okay. School's in the North. So we go to school. Um, oh, man. Can you hear my daughter in the background? Yeah, but it's fine. It makes for, for good content. <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me try to put that out. I, no. Let me, let me try to put that out. Give me a second. Timmy, why are you ruining me? And LD is trying to get his daughter, Timmy, to stop talking. I've been keeping him for like an hour now. Take the whole thing. Just take it. Go. Yeah, sorry about that. All right. You all good? Okay, yeah, all good. So anyway, we live in, we live in the south. Um, school's up north. And, you know, the northern part's mostly house. The southern, southern part's is mostly non-house and mostly, like, you know, Christian. So it's like, that's like the bridge is kind of what connects both areas, right? Um, and I generalize because I know that some folks are going to be like, no, it's different, blah, blah, blah. But that's how it was back then, majority, right? Uh, just generally speaking. So we're in school and, you know, again, like I said about my school earlier, there were a lot of influential people at the school. So, you know, a call would come in to the principal's office and every now and again, they may have to come grab someone, right? Um, that used to happen when there was like a security issue. That was actually like an indication, you know, when we were in school mm -hmm. that something was about to happen. or So well, you guys caught on eventually when it happened a couple of times. Right. Was that, okay, anytime people start disappearing, there might be like a coup that's coming yeah. up and something's happening, right? Why not just take the whole school? Why specific people? Like, um, Because a lot of times it wouldn't have been announced. Mm. And sometimes it was like, it was like a false alarm too. Like nothing would happen, right? So it wasn't all the time. I guess sometimes it may have been like a drill of some sort, <laughs> you know? Got it. But, but the security was, you know, pretty tight you know, around, I mean, not that it was tight on the school campus, but just in general, right? So anyway, on this day, and I forget what date it was, a time of year, but it was the 1992 riots, if you can find the information somewhere. in mm. uh, But we were in class and, you know, Mr. Donkor, I think was his name, he was, he worked in the reception, the principal's office or something. And he would show up in the class with a list of names and he kept calling names and then people would leave and he would come wow. back all another set of names and then people would leave. So everybody else started looking around and wondering, whoa, 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 what's going on. Right. And the folks that were leaving obviously were the kids of like the more senior, like generals and, you know, people in the army and, you know, and, and such. So it was an interesting little situation because then we started wondering, okay, how do we contact, you know, my, Oh, 
there's a part of the story that I missed, and it's the fact that my parents had actually left um, Kaduna at the time, and they left me behind because they wanted me to complete my higher um, my high school in Kaduna. In okay. Kaduna before leaving, right? So at this point, I'm leaving. So who, are, living, who are you living with? Were you living alone um, or with a family? I was uh, living with my best friend. Got right? it. But so with I'm your best friend, oh, this must be old Nigeria. Your parents allow you to live with a friend. <laughs> <laughs> yep. yep. Okay. That's something that doesn't happen very often these days. But yeah, no, so I lived no. with my best friend at the time um, and his mom. And his mom worked south of Kaduna, right? Um, and usually what would happen is the driver would come pick us up, right? Drop us off and pick us up. Um, so he's in a different class and I'm thinking, okay, we need to figure out a way to call mommy, his mom, and basically get her to send the driver because people are disappearing. Something must be going on. Right. Mm. So where did his mom work? She worked at a Pojo in, in, uh, which is in the South Nigeria. Okay. Um, she was one of the directors there, I believe at the time. Um, so you know, we're still wondering, okay, what's going to, well, I was wondering, you know, what's going to happen. And then it started getting a little bit chaotic because a lot of people were leaving. Right. So at some point I went over to his class and I was like, yo, what are we doing? And he's like, what's going on? And I'm like, can't you see like people are like leaving? And he's like, yeah, but you know, they do that sometimes. And I'm like, nah, something's definitely going on. Right. And then we go downstairs and I think we're actually going to try to go make a phone call to call his mom's office to say, Hey, we need to get out of here. Cause people are getting out of here. Right. Mm. <laughs> Um, but just as we were headed down, someone was like, Hey, uh, it was Landry and then talk And I was like, Hey, yeah, we're here. It's like, okay, you guys need to come down as well. It's like, Oh, okay, cool. So we get down and, um, his mom had actually sent the driver. Okay. So she had to find out. So she, yeah. I mean, cause at this point, I mean, we didn't know, but the entire city had already erupted down. And I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was ugly. And, I don't know how much of the graphic details I can give on your podcast because I don't know what your audience... I mean, it is a podcast, you know, so yeah, there's no restrictions. So anyway, so we get in the car um, and then the driver is like, oh my God, you know, it's, it's happening. Ah, we have to go now. Yeah. So we get in the car and now we have to go across the city, right? Because we're in the South. So we're driving and the first thing we come across is just like a a mob like there's just like a huge mob and there's like fire smoke so we could see cars that were burnt we could see like tires in the middle of roads we could see they put blockades everywhere right so it's like drums and like bamboo sticks and like branches of trees and things like that in the middle of the road right so we're trying to figure out how to get home there's multiple ways but there's really only one way to get from north to the south which is that bridge so we're navigating navigating shunting 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 and then we get to this point where we took a, it was kind of like a curve that lands you where you couldn't turn around, right? Mm. So we're on this curve, we come out to this place and it's at least like a hundred people and they have like um, what Southerners call suya knives, what mm. are really just like house of swords, right? They, mm. had these, they had these swords, they had like, you know, bow and arrow, they had all kinds of crazy weapons, right? Um, machetes and axes and all kinds of things, right? And they're basically dragging people out of the cars ahead of us and slaughtering them. Damn, right in front of you. Like, I'm talking 50 yards out. Cars behind us, so we can't back up. Mm. Cars in front of us, roads narrow, so we can't turn around, right? So at this point, the only thing we could do get is out the car. Like, get out the car and try to run. But we spent too much time hesitating, right? And before we knew what was happening, they had already surrounded the car. 
And you're yeah. in high school, so this must have been what, 15? I was, uh, what was, how old was I? 92. 16? 14, 15? Yeah, somewhere around there. 15, yeah. Okay. Um, but anyway, the driver, well, my, my best friend is Christian. As a matter of fact, is Catholic. Mm. So they had a rosary in the car, which usually is an indication that you're not Muslim, right? Mm. So the rosary is hanging off of the visor, right? Or the, or the, or the, uh, the rear view mirror or something, right? Right there in the middle, it's got, you know, you know, you have a rosary and a little picture of Jesus. Mm-hmm. It was something like that hanging from that mirror in the car, right? So I'm looking at that. I'm looking at him. I'm looking at the driver. Driver's Christian. He's Christian. These people show up. And then the next thing, they ask the driver to, like, roll down the window. As soon as he rolls down the window, he's talking about, oh, you know, blood of Jesus. And I recognize that that was the wrong thing to do. Mm. At the time. That giveaway. Because you were basically saying to these guys who are obviously on the house side that you are not Muslim. Thankfully, I'm Muslim. At least I was born Muslim. So the first thing I did as soon as I noticed that was I started speaking Hausa to the guy. That was the other thing, too, is the driver couldn't speak Hausa and my, my, my best friend couldn't speak Hausa either. Mm. So I started speaking Hausa to the guys. And they're asking me, where are you guys coming from? Who are you? Blah, blah, blah. And I basically said to them, oh, this is my my, my uh, mom's driver. Right. And he's just taking us home. And they're like, where do you live? And we say, oh, we live in the, we live in Barnawa in the South or whatever. And they're like, come get out the vehicle or whatever. Right. So then I say to the guy, I'm like, ah, come on, what are you talking about? Like we we're together, like me and you we're brothers, right? Like, what are you doing? Mm. And then he goes, okay, in that case, recite a chapter from the Quran. Like he literally told Seriously? me. One. Yeah. He said, recite Surah Al-Fatiha right now. And if you can't, you're all gone down. I could do that in my sleep. So that was an easy one. So I basically just started reading, reading as soon as I, as soon as I got like, I never knew you were born Muslim though. Yeah. (laughs) I knew you were born in in Zaria, but I didn't know you were born Muslim. Yeah. My, my parents are, yeah. Both, both my parents are uh, Muslim. Got it. But, um, so I turned to him and I start reciting Surah Al-Fatiha. I'm like, oh, you know, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, blah, 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 blah. At, at this time, what, what was the driver, what was the expression on the driver and your friend's driver face? Driver just, just hysterical. I wasn't even paying attention to him anymore. Because hmm. I think at that point he was already pissing his pants thinking it was, it was all over, you know. Hmm. Uh, best friend is just in shock. I'm not even really paying attention to him. He's not saying anything. He's just like sitting there and just, well, I guess he couldn't really understand what the dialogue was between hmm. me and the guy that I was talking to. But I was basically telling the guy, look, listen, you need to let us go. And also because the vehicle was obviously a Pojo vehicle from the company, because all the Pojo vehicles had like the Pojo logo on the size of it. Mm-hmm. They could tell that it was an official vehicle. So me speaking mm-hmm. house to the guy and then also being Muslim. And then he, I guess they just figured, OK, this could be. You know, and, one of our, well, and for the benefit of some of our listeners, just talking to, you know, a particular car, a Pojo that was used by a lot of government officials and a lot of like big companies for, you know, company purposes. So you having that car, given that your mom worked at the plants, at the Pojo plant or a distributor, like that also lends credence to your story that, okay, this might be so important, you know, it's actually Muslim, let's let him go. Exactly. Say. Exactly. Mm. So that's, so that's eventually was the reason why they were like, okay, you know what? Keep, keep going. So then they led us through that whole situation. Um, and then as we drove past, and this is a scene that I can't get out of my head till tomorrow and it's horrible. And I hate that I have to share it. Um, but it was at least 
a hundred people, men, women, children that had been laid on the side of the street and slaughtered, literally like hands tied, throat slit or like chopped up, like with a machete or whatever, like lining up the side of the road for at least maybe half a mile. Um, And we're driving through all of that. And I'm looking at it thinking. And this kind of like these incidences were regular occurrences like every other month. Yes. And and you wouldn't and you won't hear about this um, because people don't like to talk about it. As a matter of fact, Mm. I was going to do an episode on this on my podcast, but I thought that it may um, ignite conversations that are probably best left the way they are. Right. Mm. Um, But yeah, this happened every every couple of years. And back then, there wasn't any social media, so there's really no way for you to know about it. It would not be reported in the news because the news was controlled by the people who were doing a lot of the pillaging. Um, it was almost like a purge. That was how they described it back then is, you know, they're going to go take out the cockroaches or kill. I think, what was it? I think there was actually a phrase. Forget the phrase in Hausa. But there was a phrase that they used to describe this, like it was like a purge, you know, every couple of years they're like, okay, cool. The government didn't intervene in any way to, or the police, given that this Um, was a frequent occurrence, like there was a protocol to... They would. A lot of times they only intervened when the Southerners were getting ahead. Mm. So, I mean, it was a Northern government with Northern police and Northern military. Mm in a state that was ruled and controlled almost entirely by Northerners. So when Northerners go, you know, killing Southerners, then it's like, eh, you know what I mean? It's like, mm. yeah, whatever. And, and the crazy thing about it is, too, it's systematic because it actually always starts from the mosque and it usually kicks off on Fridays. So is there like, are, are you trying to say though that it's possible that there was some kind of like announcement that, okay? No, it's not a possibility. That's exactly what it was. It was always an announcement. Somebody would announce that, hey, it's time to go premeditated. Oh, man, I, I, I yeah. forget that phrase right now. I'm trying to remember what that phrase was. And there would always be a reason for it. Oh, these, these unbelievers are doing X, Y, Z, and we need to do, you know, we need to go out there and cleanse, you know, our mm. neighborhoods or our system or whatever. And a mob would just basically build and it would be like, thousands of people and they would go into neighborhoods and snatch people out. I People would actually point out their neighbors. Give people up. They will give people up. Hmm. This is not to say that there weren't some good people. There were good people who would actually help to hide some of their neighbors, right? But yeah, it, I mean, the, I think the closest thing that, I, that I've seen um, that actually describes that experience is Hotel Rwanda, if you've seen that and what that I was. I have. I have now, seen that. I, I won't say that the numbers were at near as much as Hotel Rwanda, but I can tell you for a fact that the atrocities that were committed were pretty similar. And the way that people were killed and the way that people lost their lives and the way that homes were burnt down and the way that it didn't matter if you were a man, woman, or a child. Yeah, it, it was a horrific... Did you guys, did you complete your last year of school after that? Did you... Wait, let me no. finish out the day. Like, did you guys go home or did you go to your friend's mother's office? Like, what no, was we the... went home. We went, we went home. Um, okay, so what happened at home? So we went home and we just, we just kind of, you know, as usual, just bunkered in for like a couple of days until everything kind of died down. And then 
Sounds like it. It sounds like uh, like there's a procedure. Like, oh, whenever this happens, it is what it is. This is what Absolutely. we do. Like, it was so frequent. It wasn't wasn't like a one off thing. And that's Absolutely. crazy. Absolutely, yeah. It that's was crazy. part of the reason why my mom left. I mean, she got sick and some other things, but that was one of the reasons that the first wave of people started to leave Kaduna because it just became one of those um, places where I mean, you never knew. Now, if you were somewhat, like I said earlier. Um, considered to be like a high profile person or, you know, you're influential somehow, or you know, some influential people, then you're somewhat safe, but he was, but there really wasn't any guarantees. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, okay, we know this person. Yeah. Yes. He's Yoruba or Igbo, but he's friends with so-and-so. So we'll give him a pass. But then if you were just a nobody to them, then, you know, it was free for all. They, they would, um, it's horrible. Like just thinking about it now is just making me a, a bit emotional. But these are some of the things that, you know, I feel like I've never really had a chance to even really talk about publicly. But yeah, those are like my my very last experiences um, in Kaduna. And I have so many fond memories of growing up in Kaduna. So you can imagine how frustrating it is. And it's one of the reasons why I never really went back. Mm. Wow. So after this, like you like finished up your school and you ended up um, I guess this was a period when you wanted to leave the country, I guess, to go right. to school, but your dad somehow convinced or he, he suggested <laughs> or he told <laughs> or he enforced. <laughs> I think it was more commanded. Yeah. <laughs> your dad did something. <laughs> commanded. He said, no. I mean, one one story I like to ask is the path not travel. Like sometimes I sit down and wonder. Um I went to a military school. My dad was in the military. Sometimes I, I sit down and wonder, oh, what would have happened if I didn't go to that school? What would have happened if I didn't have this sibling? What would have happened if I didn't come to the U.S.? What would have happened if I didn't start my podcast? What path do you think you would have charted in life? One, if you had stayed in Kaduna, if that was even a possibility? Mm-hmm. And what path do you think you would have charted in life if you had gone abroad to like for school, for undergrad? I think if I had... Well, leaving Kaduna was, I was going to leave regardless because growing up, I already kind of realized that I didn't quite fit in. Mm. The older I got, the more I recognized that I didn't fit in or wouldn't be accepted. Right. So even with the music and everything, like sometimes I noticed that even though there are tribal differences or racial differences like we have in the U.S., like they're common connectors and music, you know, especially hip hop happens to be one thing that connects people from different cultures. Food is another thing and, you know, a couple of other things. Even with that, it was still not enough. I mean, people, so, so the thing about it is it's interesting, right? I feel like it's a slave and a slave master type situation, right? Mm, Where mm. when the kids of the slaves are growing up with the kids of the slave masters, everyone's equal and everyone's cool and everything's okay. Mm. But then as they get older, you get to the point where you're like, okay, I'm the slave and you're the master, right? Mm. And so now we can't play together. Now we're no longer equal. Now I am your pet or your mule, so to speak. Um, and once you start feeling like that, then you feel like you feel out of place. Right. So a lot of people who felt that way obviously didn't want to stay. Um, going to the U S was as a function of all of the influence of being in American school. Um, they tried to get us to go to the U S I mean, you were being prepped to go to the U S, um, was the whole premise of the school in the first place. Right. Um, this is how a lot of the Northern 
the elites had their kids go study abroad is they would go to like a feeder school like like my school or like some of the schools in the north that were set up kind of similar. Um, and then they would go to like Europe or the U.S. to go to college. And then once they're done with college, they would come back to Nigeria and then join some ministry somewhere and basically take up some political appointment, you know, appointment mm-hmm. right? Um, so yes, I was going to leave Kaduna either way. Okay. okay? Um, That's fair. But if I had gone to the U.S., which is the second question, it's really interesting. And I, I always wonder what, what would have happened because my mindset, my mentality at the time, honestly, I don't know. I think it, I think it would, I definitely would have done some amazing things. Who knows? Maybe I would have been. I mean, you did do some amazing <laughs> things for Christ's sake, LD. <laughs> We're no, just no, no, talking I... about part before the, before we started recording on how you influenced me almost two generations removed. <laughs> no, I, you influence I, millions no, of people. And, man. No, I, I appreciate that. And, and thank you um, for, for being so kind. But I just feel like I had so much potential and a passion at the time to go to the U.S. and study engineering and become this like really influential engineer or, you know, whatever it was that would have happened on that path, I feel like I would have done some truly amazing things. Right. Mm. So in a sense, what did you have family anywhere in the U S like if you had gone to the U S what state do you think you would have ended up in? Oh, I would have ended up in Massachusetts. I did have family in Massachusetts. Okay. Engineering Massachusetts. Okay. I can, I can see that. Yeah. I would have ended up in Massachusetts. Um, I would actually hadn't even decided if it was going to be engineer. It was going to be something along the engineering lines because my dad's an engineer and that's kind of how he prepped all of us. And that was the mid nineties, right? Where a lot of, or I guess, were you already playing with computers at that point or like civil engineering kind of thing? Oh no, I was already playing. I was playing with computers from when I was like uh, nine or 10. I was building computers actually. (laughs) I was like, 12 or something. Yeah. So no, my dad was, he's, um, he's a, he's a man, that man never gets credit, but he was way ahead of his time, way ahead of his time. Talk to me about your dad a little bit. Like we know about your mom. We we fans that listen to music, we know how your mom helped you, you know, set up your studio, you know, got you a car. She pretty much, a lot of people say your mom actually was one of the financiers in building the Nigerian entertainment or at least music industry. Music like industry, how, absolutely. Like how the mafia 100%. did for Las Vegas. Like it was LD's mom who was like the mafia in Nigeria that built music. Industry. 100%, 100%. And she deserves that. I actually feel like Afrobeats music should put up a freaking monument of my mom because... Yeah, but she was silent. She didn't like the like the spotlight. Like, you should, we, really. we knew her through you because you always, like, were propping her up and, you know, she wasn't liking your lyrics or anything, but you always, like, told us about her. So it was kind of like how Eminem talked about his daughter on the side. Like, we just got to know there was this mystical figure, you right. know, that was making things happen, you know, for these right. young people. And, you know, we really appreciated that, especially back in the time. This was before, you know, Nigeria had all these uh, sports stars and music stars. So you couldn't point to an Anthony Joshua. You couldn't point to, you know, someone who was, was doing nothing. big things. So only a lot of parents that, didn't yeah. want their kids to go into entertainment at all. Exactly. And, I, and, I, and I, I'm sorry, I'm cutting you off. But my mom supported me doing anything I wanted to do from when I was a kid. When I wanted to to dance, she supported it. When I wanted to do comic books, she supported, she supported it. When I said, hey, you know what? I want to do music. She supported it because she, and she doesn't get enough credit for this, but she just had, there was something special about her in, in the fact that she wasn't really one to go with public opinion, right? Mm. 
it wasn't cool to be a dancer as a kid. It wasn't cool to do comic books as a kid. It wasn't cool to be a musician as a teenager. But my mom never really cared about. She what was a nonconformist. Yeah. She wasn't. She didn't never really cared about that. And she always felt like, listen, your grades are good. You give me what I want. You're not a bad kid, and you have a passion for this. I'll support it. But before before I even like find out a little bit about your dad, like how did they even get to meet? Because from what I understand, <laughs> like your mom's last name is Latimo, right? No, 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 no. Oh, no, Actually, that's my that's my mother in law's last name. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, that that was research gone left. I'll probably edit that. <laughs> but um, was your mom from the south? I mean, I would imagine your dad's last name was Dabri, right? Because that's your yes. last name. Yes. Um, but was your mom from the south? How did she get to meet your dad? Did she, did she ever tell you stories about that? Um, so my mom, my mom's actually from Ijebode. Mm. Her dad was a goldsmith and this is Southwestern Nigeria, Southwestern Nigeria, right? Mm. Close to Lagos, probably about what? 45 minutes from Lagos, Ijebode. Um, and he, her dad was a, my grandfather was a goldsmith, my mom's dad. Um, and at some point he had moved to Kano, which is in the North. And that's where he basically raised his family. Mm. Because in the north, I guess there was more of a market for gold and yep. his business thrived better um, in the north. So he moved to the north um, shortly after, maybe even before independence or maybe shortly after independence. I don't know, somewhere around there, right? Moves to Kano and basically raises his family in Kano. So all of my mom's siblings were actually born in Kano. Mm. She was born in Ijebu, but her younger ones were born in Kano. So they grew up in the north. Um, and then my mom ended up in Kaduna because she, she ended up at the Kaduna Polytechnic. Okay. Right. So my dad, he grew up in Lagos and he studied at the University of Ife. He was an engineer um, in Ife. Very brilliant guy. Um, oh, so somehow, you switch. Your dad was a northerner who grew up in the south. No, no, no. My dad, oh. they're, both, they're both southerners. Oh, they're dad's both southerners. Mom's from Ibode. So my dad grew up in Lagos, but he went, he studied at Ife, University of Ife, which is also southwest. Right? Got it. Got it. Um, so when he when he was done studying in Ife, he he started working with folks who basically took him to the north. And he was working on some projects and somehow he ended up in Kaduna and somehow he met he met my mom while he was in Kaduna. And somehow she gets pregnant, she has a kid, she's still in college, she goes through college or whatever, um, and then she settles in Kaduna. Do you think there's a connection there? Cause you mentioned that your mom was a nonconformist. I mean, I would imagine uh you know, getting pregnant as a student back maybe in the 70s or when your mom was in school, like in the 60s, mm. might have been frowned upon and maybe a lot of our friends, you know, disassociated themselves from her. Maybe she faced some kind of social pressure being so young, having a kid. So she was already used to not living the normal life. So if our kids said, oh, he wants to draw, he wants to do something that's not accepted by society, she's like, fuck society, that I've been there. Like, do what you want to do, make yourself happy. Okay. Can, can I sort of like respectfully draw a line between those two phenomenons? I think that there is probably a bit of a connection, even though at the time having a kid at the age of 21 wasn't really considered too young, right? These mm. were the first set of Nigerians that were getting educated, mm. first of all. So the concept of going through school and not having had kids already wasn't so foreign at the time, I think. Um, even though I do remember that her dad was not happy at all. Mm. <laughs> because, I mean, you're supposed to be in school, you're supposed to be doing all this stuff, and then you go and get pregnant for this guy. And and 
there's another dimension to the story, which is that my dad already had a family at the time. Oh, got it. So that part of it was really where the stigma was, was you went and had a, you went and got pregnant for this guy who already has a family. Family, got it. You know, so, so she ended up being like, you know. And this is your second. grandfather, the goldsmith. Yes, talking. yes. Mm. And this, yeah, so that would have been like the ugly part of the whole thing is not you getting pregnant, but you getting pregnant for this guy who, so now you're going to be someone's second wife. And my grandfather's Muslim, but he didn't have a second wife. And he didn't believe in that whole concept. This is my grandfather, the goldsmith now. He didn't believe in that concept at all. So, it, you know, it just was one of those things that he wasn't excited about. As a matter of fact, he did not agree for them to get married until, I don't know, was it almost 15 years later, maybe? Wow. So you were grown. Did you get to meet him at all? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did. I did get to hang out with him. He was so cool. he didn't take it out on you, actually. Oh, no, no, no. Not at all. Not at all. I mean, love all the way. But... Um, he didn't accept my dad. He just didn't, he just couldn't like, he just didn't accept him, you know, for, for a long time. But eventually, you know, they had the ceremony. I remember my, my youngest sister was already born when they had the ceremony. Matter of fact, <laughs> I think they had the ceremony in, in 1986, 87. Well, they had the ceremony 15 years later. Right. After they Got met. It. Well, if it's 87, then it was actually technically 11 years later, but yeah. Got it. But it was, a, yeah, it was a long time after that, before they actually had like a wedding, like a proper, like, you know, we were already grown when they had their, their wedding. So, yeah. Well, you guys must have enjoyed yourself during the ceremony, man. They ate a lot of rice. <laughs> like, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, but, but talk to me a little bit about your dad. What kind of man was he? Like, uh, did, did you, who was he to you? Like, a lot of people look up to their fathers, you know, growing up, being the first male figure you interact with at a very young age. What did he do and what kind of influence did he have on you uh, as a young library growing up? So when I was younger, I didn't spend a lot of time. Hmm. Let me be careful how I, about how I say that. When I, when I was younger, my dad was hardly ever around because he was on the road. He was an engineer. He had a project that he was working on. He actually was setting up the telecoms network that became NITAL. Okay. Right? Um, so he was like one of the senior engineers, and he had to be on site for all the installations because he was one of the only guys who could do it. Well, at least one of the only Nigerians who could do it. So they had like folks come in from like Italy and France and other countries um, okay. that he worked with at the time. So he was like the local supervising engineer, right? And because of that, he was hardly ever available. Mind mm -hmm. you, he's got two families, right? So yeah. there's the first family who at the time lived in Katsina. Oh, a different state. Different state. Also okay. north, northern Nigeria. Actually further north, closer to Niger Republic. So closer to like the desert regions and whatnot. Yeah. Um, so he had that family and then he had us, right? So he would go and spend some time there whenever he took some time off. And then he would spend some time with us whenever he took some time off. So he was kind of splitting his time in between, right? Mm -hmm. And um, during the holidays, and this is why I say I got to be careful about how I say it, he made effort. And I see that in retrospect, but he did make effort. He would come and grab me for the summer holiday, which is like the eight-week holiday, right? Mm -hmm. Was it eight or 10 weeks? I can't remember. It was long, the long one. He would grab me and then he would take me on the road with him. So I would literally be in the car, sleeping in the car, sleeping in like, in, in these cabins and like these little, um, um, what do you call them? The RVs and things like that. Is that where uh, the engineering, uh, wanting to go to Massachusetts to be an engineer came from? That probably came, probably came from some of those experiences, right? Going into these super complicated, complex telephone exchanges with all of these wires. It was like living with someone that worked in a data center today, right? Mm. 
because we would be in these like freezing, chilling, cold rooms for like hours and hours. And my dad is there just connecting wires and plugging things and checking signals and teaching me, oh, look at these lights. When it's red, it means this. When it's orange, it means that. When it's green, it means this. And this connects to that. And this feeds this. And so he, he's, he, he liked, my dad loved to teach. Mm. And I think I get that from him, that I like to teach as well, right? When I learn something, I want to share. My dad is that guy. He walks in a room and he's immediately teaching. Oh, did you know this and this and that and this and that and this and that and this and that? I mean, through my dad, I learned so many things from building computers to doing electrical wiring for a house, which I've done before. Wow. <laughs> um, to setting up computer networks, to understanding how the internet works. My dad was the first person to have the internet in Nigeria. In his house? At No, period. Got it. Wow. Period. Internet connection. Were, were you allowed? Because I remember a friend of yeah. mine had the internet much later, like 97, but we weren't allowed. Like it's only when oh, we were. his dad was out of work, we'll just sneak in to like check Yahoo Mail or something. No, we were. We were. Um, mm. And all of the first cyber cafes in Lagos were actually set up by my dad. Mm. I mean, he was the backbone, essentially. Um, he set up the first couple of ISPs as well. I think Cyotel was the first one. Um, what was the other one? Um, he was connected somehow, some way to all of that stuff, by the way, around that time. This was like, what, 90, 94, 95, 96-ish. But anyway, long story short is my dad is a technology visionary. Like he was that guy, okay? Mm. He was, and he was way ahead of his time too. Like a lot of the things that he was doing and things he was tapping into, um, even before like the cell phones came about, mobile um, telecoms and all of that, he was actually one of the drivers of the fact that we ended up having cell phones. His best friend mm. at the time, who happens to be KB's dad. <laughs> Kunle Bello, who Kunle you Bello, formed a group the, with from much later. Group, right. Um, actually worked at Nitel. And he had met my dad like in the younger years when my dad was doing what I was just describing earlier, setting up these networks and whatnot. He had now become a director and he was one of the ones who was really pushing. And he actually was at the forefront of getting Abacha to um, basically go ahead with the whole cell phone thing in Nigeria. So they, they played interesting roles, but Nigeria being what it is, people never really get credit. No history. Like it's, it's Honestly. amazing. Like I, I was a banker for like five or six years in Nigeria, right? Before I came over here and it amazed me to, like, I was so interested in the banking hit, uh, industry. Cause when I hear about, you know, a young Jim Ovier starting a bank in 1990 or, you know, Tony Lumelu in the 80s or even people before them of right. how, you know, First Bank was a central bank. Like, I wanted a banking museum. I wanted history, a book, something I could mm. go to and, like, read through about my industry because uh, mm. I was a participant in the industry. But unfortunately, there was nothing. There were, there were no records. And this is almost the same, like, with the entertainment industry today. I know people like, uh, you know, Ariane uh, Mashao and people like that trying their best to document things. But just just the culture that like there's no culture of documentation there's no, no documentation, history no. so like how will like the next generation know about what went on you know before they came i mean uh, the other uh, dimension to that is that at some point in nigeria you actually got credit and honored for doing the right thing and i think somewhere along the way we lost our way and it became impossible to become a jim ovia in nigeria unless mm. you were tied to or connected to some political fig, right? So back then, it was possible for you to become a Jamovia. It was possible for my dad to be the one to bring the internet to the country. It was possible for, you know, KB's dad to push for the mobile telecoms to be set up because there wasn't any, it wasn't about like personal. Mostly merit. Mm. It was all merit-based. These were mm. the smartest people 
doing really smart things and building and creating amazing um, companies and industries and and forums, right? But then everything shifted when it became all about appointment, right? Yep. Yes. People get appointed. I mean, who should have led the Ministry of Information if he didn't come from the circle of people like my dad and his friends? I'm mm -hmm. in all honesty. Forget that he's my dad. Mm -hmm. This was the guy that brought the internet to the country. He knew about the whole industry, yeah. We had a 1.5 meg connection at my house in 1996. <laughs> wow. Okay. These are the people at the forefront. These are the people that were exposing everyone. He set up CBN. He set up um, Chevron and Mobile and all of those companies in Nigeria, like their connection. Before the internet, like just the connection from their linked connection from Nigeria to their international stations over here in the U.S. and in the yeah. U.K. and on. He was doing that at the time. So anyway, I say all of that to say that my dad was a vision, well, is, you know, one of those visionaries. I feel like I take a lot of my wanting to do things from watching him. Watch him. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree, especially on the merit thing. I mean, my dad was like the only person admitted into the Nigerian Defense Academy from then Bendo State, so Bini and Delta. And he did, he just saw the ad on the paper and he scored the highest and he got admitted into the military. And he used that on us up until damn near the mid-2000s. Like we're trying to tell him that, dude, times have changed, man. Like, no, I got into the military myself, you know, once you're, it took him a long time. Eventually, he, like, sat us down, like, I think I, I see the new Nigeria now, like, oh, welcome to the party. But, <laughs> <laughs> but eventually, you went to the University of Lagos. Um, I don't know how I'll touch on this topic, because obviously, you know, there's a whole aspect of you being in the University of Lagos um, and starting a group uh, called Tribesmen, we, you know, went on to be, you know, one of the biggest groups out of West Africa, forming a collective, uh, the tribe, you know, starting a, a record label, Tribes Record. The musical history is there. And there's a very funny episode <laughs> that you have for your podcast called Karate Kid. Mm -hmm. I think everyone listening to this podcast, like, feel free to just pause this, go over to Nigerian American and just <laughs> listen to <laughs> Karate Kid, the episode on, on LD's podcast. That was hilarious and funny. But thank you. <laughs> Unilag back then, the University of Lagos was kind of like the gold standard in a sense, because in as much as, you know, the University of Ife were, you know, thriving in academics and, you know, University of Ibadan were known for this and University of Benin was known for sports, Unilag kind of put all that together. So you right. had people who, you know, some of the best, you know, actors and actresses and whatnot came out of there and some of the best technocrats and, you know, captains of industries also came out of there. Like, Unilag had this thing going on back when I knew you know, like, and this was the early 2000s, so I'm not sure if it was there in the 90s, of like groups and cliques. So you had like the Green Boys or the Pink Girls or something. And these are just people who just come out and, you know, just hang around in front of the hostels and, and you know, just say, oh, for a fresher to join us, uh, you must be the flyers dresser. So there was a whole, like, a high school. Well, like fraternities, basically, like the fraternities over here, like the, you know. Exactly, exactly. Kind of like the fraternities, the Psi, Omega. You know, they had these very funny names, and everyone was trying to outdress everyone and outspend everyone <laughs> in the club and, you know, outdo everything. Was right. that prevalent when you were on campus? Or actually, no? I actually was, a, I am a founding member of one of those fraternities. Mm. Um, and, and also one of the first people in the history of fraternities to actually quit the fraternity. Really? <laughs> <laughs> no one actually quits. What happened? <laughs> wait, wait. Talk to me about how you, how you joined before you tell me how you quit. All right. So, so when I, when I, um, there was something different about me, I guess, when I, when I, when I joined Unilag, like, 
I was coming from an American school. I spoke different. I sounded different. I thought different. I had like a totally different mentality mindset. My attitude to my environment was different. And I was very conspicuous because of it, right? Mm. So I guess a friend of mine, Bola, um, who was in my class and studying architecture at the time, um, he had come up to me and he was like, yeah, you know, we need to set up our own fraternity. And, you know, this is one of the ways that we can basically get away from being harassed by the the gangs and the cults, right? Mm. was like, yo, we need to set up this fraternity. Once we're recognized as part of this group, then we wouldn't have to deal with all of that bullshit, right? Which at the time, anything that could just help me get away from all of that madness that had to do with cultism and all everything else that was going on mm-hmm. was welcome, right? I just, yeah. Outside of me being, I mean, I used to hide in my room and make music as a way to just kind of keep from all of the madness that was going on. And it was really, really bad in my time, right? Um, so that was an option, right? Okay, cool. And then I was like, yeah, so what are we going to do? It's like, oh, and he sold me like this really cool idea, which is kind of like how the fraternities are here. He's like, yo, we're going to start this. We're going to grow it into a network. We're going to, you know, bring in new members every year. We're going to grow it into something big. We can leverage it when we leave when we leave school, you know. And then I think he actually gave me an example of like the universities over here and mm-hmm. how the fraternities were like lifelong memberships where you could um, leverage the network, you know, once you got out of college. So yeah, I was like, yeah, sure. You know, that makes sense. Oh yeah. We're going to have like a launch party. We're going to throw parties. We're going to do this. And it was all nice and, and, and great. And Oh, by the way, we need 12,000 hour to start. And I was like, Whoa, Oh, this is 1990, <laughs> 1997? It was like, it was like, nah, it was 90, yeah, 96, 97, 96, uh, 96. Yeah. I think in 96, my school fees was like 70 bucks or something. Right. So, <laughs> I was like, whoa, 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 12,000, bro. That's like somebody walking up to you right now and asking for like 1. Well, 1.2 million era, you know, actually mm-hmm. no, more like 12 million, I think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in terms of value. But anyway. So I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And he's like, yeah, no, don't worry. You know, we'll just get together, a group of us, blah, blah, blah. Each person needed to contribute. I think it was like 2000 or 4000 I can't remember what the amount was. I think 4000 Something like that. So anyway, so I go to my mom and I'm like, yo, I need this, this. That's one of the things that my mom did too, right? Where she was just like, so what is it? I'm like, yeah, you know, it's starting like a thing and we're going to do this and blah, blah, blah. You didn't use the word fraternity, I'm sure. You know, the funny thing is fraternity wasn't even considered a negative thing at the time. Yeah. Cults was what was the bad. No, thing. it's totally different from confraternities. Like confraternity, exactly. It's, it's so when you say, oh, it's is a fraternity. And, and the interesting thing is when you say fraternity around Nigerians, they immediately think. They immediately think like, like we, we try to do some fraternity <laughs> things, but of course the University of Benin, like. Once you say frater, they're like, whoa, okay. stop. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so I was like, yeah, you know, join a club is what we called it. I was like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, I'm going to join this club. Right. And I'm going to be, you know, and there's, uh, so there's some other clubs, there's ABC and there's Row and there's Folds. Those I think are I remember Roadrunners. I don't know if that's a. Nah, never, no, never. never. That must have been later. So, so Row, <laughs> RHO was the first one. Okay. Um, Actually, I'm not sure about that timeline. I stand corrected. Then there was ABC mm. and then there was Folds. So those are the three that were in existence in Unilag at the time, right? And then we came and started one and we called it Excel. Excel. So mm. that's the one that I'm speaking of right now. So basically we got together, put money together. We had this big launch party. And in order to make a statement, we had to do some, we had to outdo everybody else pretty much, mm. right? So for the first party, I think we bought them, we bought all of the girls as part of the invite. Versace, Versace blew, um, that Versace blew the fragrance, the one in the little fancy can. Yeah. Um, and, a, and a cake or something like that. It was like just some 
silly things. Um, <laughs> so that was like how we invited the girls and there was like a secret destination for the party. And when we were having that launch party, it was a convoy that stretched from Unilag all the way to the island. Wow. Like I'm talking about hundreds of hundreds of cars wow. lined up trying to figure out where the party was. Um, we had it somewhere off Ribadu at some club at the time. I forget what that club is called. Um, but I mean, it was a huge party. Anyway, so go through all of that. You know, party's nice. Everybody's talking about Excel. Was and this so- before Tribe or during Tribe? Before. During Tribe. Early Tribe. Okay. Yeah. So during so- Tribe, early Tribe. Yeah. Okay. So, so this I'm sure your, your, your celebrity landed to the... Eh, not, club. No, not really. Not really. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I, I don't think I'd give the club, I would, I wouldn't give the club tribesmen credit. I think mm. it was more of the fact that I was kind of popular already, not because of my music, because I was, I was just different. Because of your swag. Maybe, maybe it was, maybe, maybe it was a little <laughs> bit of that. You know, maybe it was a little bit of that. But I, I know that when I was, when I first got into school, I felt really out of place. I was always sick and that made the girls in my class and around me kind of put me in this, oh, you know, kind of corner. And so there was that perspective of who I was, right? And, and so I already had a lot of people that knew me. But then when I joined the club, and then also because of Tribesmen, and then also because I was affiliated with KB's theater group, Theater 15, mm. a lot of the stuff that they were doing kind of rubbed off. A lot of stuff we were doing rubbed off. They ended up producing that show Twilight Twilight Zone, mm. that theater group. Um, and that theater group had a lot of people that came out of it. Princess, the comedian, came out of that group. Daryle mm. um, um, the TV show host, came out of that group. Kaide um, mm. Pitas, uh, movie director, Viola Loba, movie director. Um, um, Kofi, the comedian, came mm. out of that group. Um, man, there's so many people that came out of that theater 15 group. But anyway, point is, um, people knew who I was right? At the time. Not necessarily because of Tribesmen. It was, the Tribesmen thing was kind of bubbling under and, and coming, you know, to the surface at the time. So we joined this fraternity, we start all this stuff. And then at some point, it became clear to me that there really wasn't a purpose. And I'm a very purpose-driven type person. Mm. Um, it, it, it became a, when are we having the next party? Since the last one was so successful. It's like, whoa, is this, is this all we're doing here? We're just going to have parties? Just That's parties. It. <laughs> like, yeah, you it know, sounds like the dream to a 19-year-old, though. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't to me. I thought it was, in fact, to be really brutally honest, I thought it was stupid. I mean, I could understand having, like, that first launch, but then what I was sold on wasn't what I was experiencing. Mm-hmm. And, then I started, and then we started to get into, like, the circle. Well, actually, no. We started getting into situations where we're like, oh, yeah, we have to have a chief. Okay. Because all the other fraternities have chiefs. Okay. Understood. And is this going to be a democratic process? Not really. We're just going to pick one guy and he's going to be the chief. And when he walks in the room and he's speaking, nobody else can speak. That was the end of it for me. I said, okay, you know what? Well, you, didn't try to, you, didn't try to be, you didn't try to be the chief yourself? <laughs> no. Nah. And you see, and that's the thing is I never, I never like see myself when I'm in a group as, oh, I'm the boss or I'm the one mm. on top of this. I always saw myself as a put in 100% and play whatever position you can at any point mm. in time. So I would be the janitor for the group if I had to. And I would lead the group if I had to. And I, would, and I would help the group if I had to. And I would chastise the group if I had to. That was me. 
because mm. I was always purpose driven. What are we trying to accomplish? I want to see what the vision is. If the vision is clear, then that's where we focus on. Let's not go in any other direction. I'm the guy that will pull people back and be like, uh, yeah, you're getting distracted. This is what the focus is, right? And that's what we do. So when it started becoming obvious that this was just a bunch of people that were getting together, I fit the profile because I had a car, I had a little bit of money. You know, I spoke with a little bit of an accent. So yeah, yeah, you know, he fits like he fits the mold. So mm -hmm. let's let's leverage. And, and then I also started to notice that the whole story about, oh, we needed 12,000 and we needed this amount and that amount. Only a few of us were actually paying the money. Mm. <laughs> so there was, there was a lot of that going on as well. So I was just like, you know what? This is bullshit. I'm out. Um, so I left. And I mean, they made fun of me for a few months, but shortly after that, Trisman blew up. So that just kind of drowned that whole. Yeah. And obviously that just went to another level like you guys i'll have you know as many links as uh, i can on the description to this episode i you know i have the link to your podcast i have the link to a couple of tribe men track maybe i'll put a link to the big picture in there so just to give our listeners a sense of what these guys achieved be most of them before they were 20 in the right. 90s in a country like nigeria like this was ridiculous like we haven't seen anything like it and it's like i said LD went on to influence people who went on to influence people who went on to influence me. So I'm like three generations removed from what he did, but I still felt the impact. So. And you're going to, and you're going to go on to influence even more people. I, I feel more, um, I feel it's more of a privilege for me to have actually been in that space at the time to be able to do those things, which is why when we were talking about, you know, the different paths and the roads not taken earlier, mm. you know, that was one of the things I was thinking about was, okay, I could have gone to Boston. I could have become a scientist or whatever. Maybe I would have been Mark Zuckerberg. Maybe I would have been, you know, this and that. But I also ended up going to Unilag, went through everything that I went through and became LD and and had you know the, what? you know what I'm saying? I mean, I love the way you think. Like a lot of people would say, I would have gone to Boston and missed out on Tribesmen. You are saying that even with the success of Tribesmen, you would have gone to Boston and achieved greater I actually think I would have been greater if I had gone to Yeah, Boston. I mean, it's, it's a good, it's good. It's good to think like that. It's a good thought process. And it just goes to show the kind of man you are and the confidence you have in yourself. And, and you know, like I said, as, as your grandchild or great-grandchild, four generations removed, like it's just inspiring me to, to know how I should think in, in the way I do things. Um, but I, I want to touch on, like I said, you know, I might not really touch on the music aspect too much because obviously you have tons of interviews about that. Apparently, you met your wife at the university also, right? Right. That's something else that probably wouldn't have happened. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you guys have been together forever. Forever. Like, yep. 1998. Like, Jesus Christ, like 98. And this is, it's, it's rare. Obviously, you know, a lot of people in the entertainment business find it difficult to like maintain a relationship, you know, things like that. Um, how did you guys meet exactly? And how have you managed to be together for this long? I'm going to tell my version of the story. Her version might be different. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm sitting in my class. I'm, I'm in architecture class. So I have a big board in front of me and I'm drawing and I'm really focused on my, my drawing, right? But then there's a window in front of me and I look out the window and I see two girls walking past. I'm hanging out with a friend of mine while I'm doing this fresh. Um, and I'm like, yo, fresh. They see, this, see those girls, see those girls. And he's like, oh, man, man, this girl's cute. It's like, yo, let's go talk to them, right? So we run downstairs, we try to find them. And I think they had walked across to the other side and somehow we didn't see them. So I was like, damn it. And next time I'll be on the lookout or whatever. And then I think it was a day after that, 
she was walking past and now she was with someone that I knew. Um, and so I went down and basically introduced myself. Well, I mean, I just kind of talked to him and then I introduced myself and I was like, yo. So I kind of asked him, I was like, yo, what's up? You know? And he's like, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, we went to school together, blah, blah, blah. And I, I like is, you know, good friend. I figured, oh, okay, if she went to school with him, then she must be um, my type. I was kind of, I was a bit bougie when I was, you know, like, to be, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. And okay. I felt like, the standard that I was looking for was like more of the kind of people that went to the school that I went to in the North. Right. And there weren't that many people, there weren't many people who are like, um, who had the same sort of, um, culture mindset exposure, you know? So that was always like a thing. I was like, okay, all right. You know, what, what are we talking about? Like I'm hanging out with these girls that sounded to me like super empty because they just had no depth. Um, and so I was always looking for that. So when I was telling him, I was like, oh, yeah, we went to school. I was like, oh, finally. So anyway, so that was initial attraction um, outside of the fact that she was beautiful. And then um, so I said, oh, yeah, and, you know, let me hang out with you guys. And then we hung out. And then I asked her to walk me to get a haircut, I think. And she... And this was walked, how the game was played in the... In the right. <laughs> walk me to get a haircut. <laughs> yeah, but you're walking to get a haircut. You know, I love that? I love she's it. Like, oh, okay, sure, why not? And then um, a couple of days later, she claims that she came to see somebody else in my class. Um, that's what she claims. But what she I claim, but she came to see you, huh? She actually came to see me because she ended up coming uh, in. Like, oh, yeah, you know, for um, this other person. And I was like, yeah, sure, he's not here, but you can hang out with me for a while, right? And then she. Wait, does up, she still claim that till now, like 20 yeah, years she later? Still claims that. Maybe yeah. she's saying the truth. Maybe she's I don't believe truth. her. <laughs> <laughs> so, ah, that's funny. She basically <laughs> comes in and. And she hangs out with me for like five, six hours, which wasn't normal. Like, I mean, that was really where we bonded. Like we talked about everything, you know, you know, where she grew up, how she went to school, what she did, where I grew up. There were people that we knew. As a matter of fact, one of her friends I had dated in the past um, that went to her school when when we were younger, you know, that we grew up together in Kaduna. And there were so many, she went to Adisway College Mm -hmm. and there were a lot of people in Adisway College that had siblings in my school. Or vice versa. So there were we could relate like just on so many different levels, right? And then having mm-hmm. found someone that I could really relate to, like that was my initial attraction to her. And we had amazing conversations and we still do. And we had just we were just in sync. Like it was almost like you know when they talk about like a soulmate. Mm. It was just one of those situations where I just met the right person. Like we fit in. And I can see it. Like, you guys have been well, together for so long now, so you know? We started looking together, apparently. <laughs> I didn't see it before, but I think I see it now. Where people are like, yo, are you siblings? Like, when, even when we were in, um, on the campus, like, people used to think she was my sister. Sister. And some of the people wondered, like, why are these siblings always together? Together. Like, what the hell? Maybe they're twins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or whatever, yeah. But yeah. Wow, that, that's, that's amazing, man. That's amazing. And one, one part of the tribesmen, you know, touching on tribesmen for a little bit, one part of the tribes uh, men story that I've always been fascinated by is how you guys did the whole Alaba thing. And mm. obviously, this is a story that, you know, a couple of people might have heard before. A couple of people are hearing it for the first time. So maybe you can tell it with a bit of twist. From what I understand, you guys had, there was no music distribution in Nigeria, right? And this was the days of cassette tapes and, you know, maybe just going into CDs. 
and you guys were releasing music and they were finding their way or you know Nollywood were releasing home videos and those home videos were being pretty much copied and pirated and being distributed all over the country and you guys kind of like jumped on that network for music because there was a market called Alaba Market that went to China bought these empty cassettes and empty CDs and you kind of like struck a deal with those guys to you know, put your music on these cassettes and CDs and distribute that. And because the music was so popular, like young people all over the country started buying it. And that built up that distribution network for like, you know, music and home videos and different things. Like, but tell the story from your perspective. I want to hear how that whole relationship came about. Obviously, Two Shots was a little bit instrumental, but that first day, when do you come to the realization that, hmm, I think we can do something here with these guys? And what steps do you guys take to materializing? So... Very interesting story, um, and you you had about eighty five percent of it like down. The parts of it that was slightly different from what you just told is that even Nollywood wasn't in Alaba at the time. Mm. Uh, the The story of Alaba is Alaba was pretty much a, a used electronics market, so they had electronics um, secondhand coming from all over the world that would be shipped to Nigeria, and that was the distribution point. So back in the day, oh, I'm talking were, VCRs, all that kind everything. of stuff. All electronics. So it was VCRs, it was cassette players and decks and boom boxes and, and amplifiers and record players and, um, you know, um, televisions. And back in the days of the CRT TVs, televisions and, and, and Betamax players and recorders and things like that. So used coming from all over the world, right? From China, from Singapore, from all these different places. They, would, they were shipped to Nigeria and they were resold as used electronics. And that was the easiest way for people to buy VHS players and things. As a matter of fact, I almost say like 80% of the electronics in Nigeria at the time was secondhand because mm. people buying brand new was like, I mean, super expensive as compared, right? So that was because what the there market. was a narrative that, oh no, if it's secondhand, it's stronger. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> I remember that and that was so dumb. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was so dumb. But, yeah, so there, there was that narrative. Um, but so that was what a lava market really was. So here's what happens. Somehow, in the midst of all of that, um, cassette tapes that you could record on two, empty cassette tapes became a thing. So they would ship out empty cassette tapes. And what people started doing is they would take the original cassettes that were released by, you know, back then Premier Records or whatever the record label was for the Sonia Days and the Onyeka Wenus and the artists from the 70s and the 80s, and they would record them onto these blank cassette tapes, mm. right? And then DJs, they would go to DJs and get a DJ mix and bring it back and put it on the empty cassette tapes. And then they would have people hawk those cassette tapes with one of the boom boxes around the city and sell the cassette tapes for like 20 to 50 bucks or 100 bucks, whatever the price was at the time, mm -hmm. right? So that was the only way that really music was circulating. Now, there used to be distribution in Nigeria. But what happened was the government, not going to mention which one of them, he ruled this <laughs> twice. I think we know. <laughs> basically decided that all companies in Nigeria, I believe this happened in 1979, he said all companies in Nigeria have to be 60% Nigerian owned. Mm. And because of that, a lot of the companies that had already established themselves in Nigeria had to either find Nigerian partners or leave. And this is how all of the big labels that were in Nigeria at the time ended up leaving. So Decca Records, Sony Polygram. Music, mm. Polygram, um, RCA, um, all of the record labels that existed at the time that were actually building an industry and the distribution companies that existed. 
And most of them are in Jos, right? Um, not all in Jos. Oh, Some in Lagos, Kaduna, Jos, um, Kano. Mm. But there was a distribution network, and they used to sell records. And that's how most people, most of our parents, at least the ones who were music enthusiasts, were able to buy LPs. That's how the DJs had access to music. That's Actual how polygraph Roger. records is a big used uh, on LPs. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> used, uh, yeah. What's the name of those uh, machines where you put what the that needle is. down? Yeah, isn't that interesting? We have to explain what that is. <laughs> I really look, man. <laughs> but um, it is. But yeah, it so, is. So, so back in the day, there was something called LPs, which like uh, it was like a compact disc. I, I guess that's where the concept of it came from. And essentially, it's a it's a record that you play, and then you have like a little um, needle that you put on the record, and the needle scratching it is what made the sound come out, and that's how we played music. But anyway. History, history. But this is way before the era that I'm talking about because we already had cassette tapes in this era. Um, and cassette tapes, something else I had to explain on one of my podcasts, you know, to people is this thing that has like a tape thing, some magnetic little component inside that basically rolls from one end to the other. And as it as, as it rolls, you can hear the music. I can I don't even, it sounds so... Yeah, I think I, I'll just right be better now. off like Googling that. Cause. Google what a cassette <laughs> is. So anyway... So these guys are recording these cassettes, and that's how they start to pirate stuff, right? At the time, the guys hawking with the boomboxes were pretty much only in the big cities, like Lagos, maybe Enugu, maybe Pataka, but nowhere else, right? So all of the people who wanted to get music from all the other smaller areas would have to come to Lagos or go to Pataka or to one of those, or Onicha, one of those big markets, to go find people hawking those tapes and buy one copy. And they could take it over to wherever they were and then make their own copies because mm -hmm. now we had access to cassette tapes. So distribution disappeared after all those companies left and everything kind of died off, which is why when we talk about the Nigerian music industry being non-existent by the end of the 80s, that was exactly what happened was the, the record labels left and it was only independent artists. And if you weren't playing traditional music and earning money from doing shows, you were pretty much a goner. And so the only musicians that were left were the ones who were just struggling. And this is the reason why music wasn't even a profession of repute or of that was even acceptable, you know, in the late 80s. If you told anyone that mm. you wanted to do music or you wanted to be a musician, it was like, it was like the worst thing you could tell your parent. Yep. It's almost like telling your parent right now that you want to be a stripper, right? Is they would look at you. I, you know <laughs> and, what you're thinking? But go, going <laughs> off that though, like you saying that, because sometimes, you know, a lot of artists talk about, you know, the older generation of musicians um, saying that, oh, no, you young cats, you, you know, you have it all now, you know, you have it all. That built when we're it. growing up, we played live instruments in the studio. When we were grow, growing up, we didn't have social media. We did actual tours to get our name out. But it's kind of like, oh, when you were growing up, you had a bit of structure too. You were assigned to Polygram. Like we Absolutely. built Absolutely. Ourselves. And Absolutely. this is not saying that, you know, one generation is better over the other, but, you know, both generations can learn from, from each other. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Craftsmanship of the, of the old ways and, you know, distribution and new ways of doing things in the new school. Absolutely. I mean, you, these guys recorded in studios with, you know, 64 track consoles. Mm. We had to make music with a freaking VOIP headset. Did you, you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> like we, we literally had to, we recorded our, first set of hits in rooms where we used a pillow for sound from okay? K. Like literally someone's holding the pillow around a mic. Mm. And that was how we recorded the first set of 
album. I had to figure out how to mix, how to master, how to do all of that. These folks worked in studios where you had professional engineers, professional producers that flew in from London. And so, I mean, it was, it's a totally, totally different game. Totally different game. And we had to build pretty much everything from scratch. So anyway, back to my Alaba story. Mm. Uh, we figured that, and then, you know, from them duplicating and duplicating and duplicating, we obviously were trying to cir circulate our music. And I just thought at one point, I was like, wait a second. What if we got these guys to actually record our tapes for us? And then we can go. But there's it. a story there, right? When you came to the realization, like you were sitting outside with a friend. Or, oh, before that. Happened. This is yeah. be before that even oh. happened. I was already thinking about, you know what, it might be a good idea to actually have these people duplicate for us. Because, I mean, I had a boombox, but how many tapes could I possibly record? And the thing about recording with tapes is it takes forever because you got to play it real time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? At some point, they, they came up with the high-speed ones, but the high-speed recordings were never good, right? So you had to play it real time. So imagine to make each tape, if the song was five minutes, it took you five minutes to make a copy. Right. But they had like a lot of boom boxes and they figured out a way to like wire them up in such a way that they could do the duplications simultaneously. Right. Play from one source and have a bunch of recordings going on at the same time. So I mm. thought, hmm, why don't we leverage these guys to make the tape? Right. Um, and then we went and then I realized, uh oh, if we give them the tapes, it's almost like us handing them the blueprint. They would just make the tapes anyway. And then we would have the few copies that we wanted. But if it became popular, which I figured it would, then they would be able to have better leverage. So I figured, hmm, we need to come up with a contract. So we were already thinking that, right? We need to figure out a way to make sure that we can hold these guys accountable. We were already thinking that. And then one day we're sitting outside. And you guys were what, 20, 21? Uh, we weren't. Not even close. Damn. How old was I? 1998. How old was I? 98. Actually, yeah, you're right. 20, 21. Impressive. 21. Oh, you did your math. <laughs> but um, yeah, 21. So I'm thinking we could figure out a way to get this music out to everyone, right? We were already popular on the campuses. And because radio was playing us in Lagos, people in Lagos already kind of knew who we were. But there wasn't really any way for us to get music to them. So we used to sell tapes out of the trunk of my car. Um, and I would hand off some tapes to like some of the guys who had just, just joined the label at the time, two shots, um, you know, Dell and, and everybody else. I'll just give them tapes. And Dell took tapes to Ife. He sold them on the campus there. Two shots took to his uh, Lasso and his neighborhood and he sold there. Freestyle took to his neighborhood and sold there. You know, so we, we had that going on, but it wasn't enough. I felt like this needed to go much further than that. Don't forget, I'm coming from Kaduna. So I have people in Kaduna who want the tapes because obviously they know me from school and they heard about this whole thing and they're trying to get their hands on it, but they couldn't, right? So this was like, how do we get this distribution going? So we go and talk to the folks in Alaba. Eventually when we heard the tape, because we're sitting outside and somebody walks by and they're playing the music and I'm like, oh, wait a second. So Babs and I, my friend Fab, who um, was Tribesman's manager at the time, um, we both decided that we were going to pursue trying to get them to, to basically lock them into some sort of legal situation, right? And legalize what they were doing so that they could do it properly and so that we could get the music out there. Now, the motivation at the time wasn't really money. It was really more just getting the music out there because mm -hmm. we figured that if we got the music out there, the money would come. There'll be show money. The yeah. money would, like, no, it wasn't even a show thing. It was a, if this thing really blows up, if this thing gets to the point where it's a national thing, then we will make money somehow. We'll figure out a way to make money. But the goal right now is to make sure that we can get as much exposure as we can with what we have. So that's how that whole situation started. And you know, it's interesting. I was talking to Fab a couple of days ago and he was telling me 
that he ran across some folks from Alaba and they're using the exact contract that we gave them in 1990. <laughs> the contract didn't change? <laughs> it never changed, apparently. So we basically You know what, that, that's, that's this- funny because I can relate to that because, you know, I think Ubi, Ubi Franklin, one of the uh, artist managers or, you know, he owns, uh, he signed Yaya and Techno and all those guys. Right. There was a period, I think like last year, where he had like a dispute with Yaya on his contract and he brought the actual contract out. And he was reading it on radio. And when he was reading, I was like, this can't be a contract that someone signed in 2013 or something. It was ridiculous. Because it was, it was reading, it was kind of like a 1960s contract. That, oh, um, any phonograph produced by the artist. I was like, did you guys even edit this like to fit the time? Well, was there streaming well, in the contract? I don't know. There was breakage in the contract. Breakage when no one is selling CDs anymore. Who thinks about breakage, you know? But I don't know. <laughs> That's so just so, me. I'm, I'm so I think I think traditionally contract all contracts even today still have those elements in them, um, mm. and the wording of it is probably set up that way because the laws were written with that type of wording. Mm. So that's probably why the contracts are written with similar lingo. So, but you are correct. Like I don't like um, legal jargon that doesn't make sense or is no longer relevant. So yeah, I, I can relate to that. But. But essentially, we, we, we downloaded a contract from the internet and we edited it. It was a distribution contract between record label and a distributor. And that's what we got Tijo to set up. And that became the template. And so what they started doing was instead of going behind people's backs and making copies and having to hide and, you know, not being able to actually distribute properly, they started reaching out to folks. And Two Shots was kind of one of the conduits because Two Shots was with us at the time. Um, yeah. So after we did the first one, which was the Tribesmen Plenty Nonsense um, CD, Two Shots album was the next thing. But when Two Shots was ready to do his album, what Tijo was doing at the time was basically trying to get everybody else in the market to see the value of going the legal route, right? Because at the mm-hmm. time, most of them felt like, well, why do I have to pay you if I don't have to pay you? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I can go ahead and just pirate this stuff and just be okay. But TJ was like, yo, why don't you just do it with the person who's creating it? Which is what we did with him, right? So it was like, guys, let's do this together. So he brought in a couple other people and they basically all did the promo for the Two Shots project together. And that's why that was so huge and successful. successful. Right? And the fact that that happened then made everybody else in the market think, oh, wait a second, this is probably the next thing that we need to do. and Really, that was the turning point in Alaba when Alaba now became what used to be an electronics market, then became a CD and movies market. Market. And I think the name of the two show album was actually Pirated Copy. Pirated Copy. Which was (laughs) funny, but you know. Wow. And Tijo, you know, also deserves a lot of credit. So those are, that's, uh, he's one of the people that, you know, they don't get a lot of credit about what they did for the Nigerian music industry. I mean, you guys did all this, um, you know, Tribesmen uh, contributed a lot to Alaba. The Tribe came out you, from you, came a lot of people, Two Shot, Sasha, TV, a lot of people that came out from Tribesmen. Right. All of a sudden, 2002 came and you left the country, right? which created like, I don't know vacuum. what created. I guess you would tell me. <laughs> to us, the fans, it created kind of like a vacuum. But I can imagine like it created a sense of betrayal within your crew because 
even years later after that happened, like you kept saying it and, you know, hinting to it in your music and talking about it in interviews that, hey, you know, it was almost like, hey, you know, what can I do? And I relate to this a lot, right? Because I was like the president of my high school alumni association before I left Nigeria. And when I left, like everyone was like, what's going to happen to the association now? Like you're the only one that can do this. I'm like, I can't do this forever. Like I just try to build a structure to hopefully put people on who can take this further. But people felt it. Is it? Um, correct to say a lot of people within tribesmen and even people within the industry felt that betrayal of you like leaving yeah. the US. Yeah. I mean and, and people did feel betrayed. And I've and I've had to deal with that more than once. Mm. Um but then the thing about it is I need purpose mm. with, with everything that I do. I need to have there has to be like an end goal. There has to be something that continues to feel the passion that allows me to enjoy what I'm doing. Kind of like with, say that again? Kind of like with Excel, the club back in the- With with Excel, right. I needed to have purpose. Like I can't be doing something just for doing its sake. Like it has to be giving me some sort of, um, I have to be getting some sort of fulfillment from Mm. doing it, knowing that I'm getting closer and closer to whatever the goal. When we started making music, I was trying to prove that you can make Nigerian music and it would be accepted. That was the first goal, which is the reason why from the very beginning, we embedded Pigeon in it. I learned to speak Pigeon when I got to University of Lagos. I didn't speak Pigeon growing up. So I picked it up when I got to Lagos and I felt, wow, this is so unique and so cool. This is like our own little patois. Yet when people try to make music, they're either trying to sound Jamaican, they're trying to sound American, or they're trying to sound like something else, South African or Ghanaian or something. And I'm like, yo, we have a lot of uniqueness in this. Why don't we embrace this and make this our thing? This is our thing. Hell, why don't we show everybody else, right? So that was goal number one. We did that. Goal number two is how do we get this out there? Distribution, we did that. Goal number three was how do we go international? Number three, we did that. We were actually the first of the Afrobeats group to perform outside of the country. What was your first performance outside Nigeria? That was in London in um, 2000. Oh, straight to London, not even South Africa or Ghana? Oh, no, it was straight to London. (laughs) Okay, okay, respect, respect. (laughs) You know, we're going to go international, we did that. We're going to get on the web, we did that. We're going to do distribution, we did that. We're going to create a movement, we did that. We're going to support anybody who's trying to create a movement. We did that. We're going to shoot our own videos. We did that. We're going gonna to get Nigerian songs played on the radio. We're we going to get Nigerian music playing on the radio. We did that. You know what I mean? So, so when you, so when there's, when there's a goal, then there's something that we're chasing. When there's no longer a visible goal, then the passion dies. When it's no longer, when there's nothing, I guess when, and this, and this is not anyone's, any particular person's fault or even mine. Maybe I'm just a scatterbrain sometimes. But when I get to the point where I'm super passionate about something else, my entire attention shifts. I don't know how to do it half and half. Mm. In 2002, it was time for me to go explore what I couldn't when I wasn't able to go to Boston. Mm. I had to leave. It wasn't even an option. I just had so to. So are you saying it wasn't an opportunity that just came for you to leave? You deliberately saying you it was deliberately... Deliberate came to the realization that, hey, I've done everything here. I need to go conquer the next. Yes. Mm. That genuinely is how I felt. I felt like, well, I mean, and this is not to say that Tribesman was super successful and I felt like I had accomplished everything. No, I felt like everything that was a goal that I had at the time, I had accomplished. And the next goal was to go see what's on the other side. So is it safe to say you you love the build-up process? Like, I love it. 
a bunch of things where we're going to talk about also later in the episode. Like you've you've started a bunch of things and you're always in there. Like when it's like get it, but when it starts becoming really structured and corporate and you know it becomes like this machine, it's like ah, it's too big for me now. It's like boring. I need to go build the next. Thing. I think so. I think so. I, I it took me a long time to actually get to the point where I accepted that that mm-hmm. I'm I'm really a creator. Like I'm not a sustainer or a manager or no, I create, I build things. I like to create things. I like to think about what the next step is and how to get to that next step. And I felt like I had peaked in Nigeria. Like what was the next step from where we were? We needed to shoot better videos. We needed to have better recording. We needed to have a better function in industry. And the only place that I thought that I could learn those things was in the U.S. Mm. So the logical next step was to move to the U.S., and learn how, how did you come here? Did you like come here soft landing to go to school like for a master's or did you come here and like go straight into the workforce? What, what was that situation like? So initially it was initially it was, oh, you know what? Let me go and spend some time and then I'll be back and forth. But then I got here and then I had an opportunity to do some work. Not with, not like corporate, corporate type of work, but in entertainment, right? Mm-hmm. Had an opportunity to do some work. So then they got me like um, an extension that allowed me to come in often over a little bit of time. So like a visa, like a work visa type situation, right? Mm-hmm. And that was kind of my initial entry and in settling in. I changed my status like much, much later, but that's kind of how I got into the system, right? Initially, my plan was just to come spend six months, go back, come back, spend six months, go back. So I wasn't really trying to leave Nigeria per se, but I needed to come to the U.S. And I needed to embed in the U.S., not like two weeks at a time, as we had done in the past, like just being on holiday, but actually be in the U.S. and really try to get into the industry and understand, learn how to shoot better videos, learn how to do better audio, learn, you know what I'm saying? So I wanted to be around that. And being in that space, I got that opportunity and I was like, oh, okay, so maybe this is what I need to be doing. And through that, I got a social and through getting my social, I could open bank accounts. I could do, you know what I mean? So things mm-hmm. just started to happen. And it was just, I mean, I couldn't, it was an opportunity I really couldn't pass up. So even when I left and people, a lot of people don't know this, I was in Nigeria every year for a couple months, mm-hmm. even after I supposedly left in 2000 and 2002. I guess there's a saying to always be ahead of the curve. Like you don't want to be the old person in the club in a sense, <laughs> like while things are hot, like you have to think about the next thing. It's just, right. it's kind of like Jay-Z, right? Oh, we're doing this now. No, it's not, it's not no longer uh, Rockefeller. It's now Rock Nation. But we're doing right. this now. No, it's, it's title. No, we're doing this now. It's now 444. Four, four, four. But we're right. doing this now. Like he's always ahead of his fans, you know, that kind of thing. So in that sense, there's no surprise. There's no, oh, when are you going to give me the next thing? Yeah, he's thought about the next thing two years ago, right? You know, in a sense. And I can see how those things you came to the U.S. to learn actually effect, affected your career because you came back and set up Tribesman 2.0, which was like, I think that was the first time I got to see a new generation record label the way it's supposed to be run. Like prior to that, you know, no shade to, you know, Kenny's music and uh, I guess the Mohits of this world. But that was the first time like this was like actually structured like a company the way Maven is today. Like this is, you could see it that, oh, this is a thing. This is not just someone saying, you know, XL records or whatever, and just slapping a logo on, on, on the CD. Uh, would you say some of those things you learned actually made Tribesman 2.0 what it was or what it became? Absolutely. Um, first of all, understanding that there's a business to it and that the business has to be structured and that you need it to structure it in a certain way and you needed to figure out a way to finance it 
and it needed to make sense from a business standpoint and not just like looking at it from a passion standpoint and knowing all of the elements that you needed to be able to really help it function the way that it's designed to or the way that it is everywhere else in the West. I think that was one of the things that I took back was, okay, now I know exactly how the business of it is. Now I know exactly how the production side is. Now I understand all of the different streams of potential income. Now I'm going to go back into that environment and try to implement those things. And fast forward a couple of years down the line, what I also realized because I was looking at it from that angle was I recognized early from a financial standpoint, that if I were to run the business just as a business, that it wasn't something that made sense, at least not for me, because I had so many other opportunities from a business standpoint that were able to generate way better return with the type of investment that is required in that environment. And I say all of that to say, if I was in the US and I set up a record label, I would get an advance from a major right? Mm -hmm. Who would say, hey, you have these artists, you have all this music. All right, we're going to front you a million dollars. Go ahead. And for that million dollars, you're going to give us, say, three albums, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go ahead, spend that money, get all the producers, get all the artists, get everything that I need done, document it. And we're going to go and we're going to put out the music and the label's going to distribute, the, the major is going to help with the distribution and blah, 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 blah. And we're going to make the money back. Sometimes you don't make the money back immediately, but because of the way that the industry is structured, you will always make the money back. It's just a matter of time. So over for example, time. if I put out an album today and I sell 10,000 records, over time, if it gets played or gets plugged or gets licensed or gets used, it's, it lives forever. Mm -hmm. So whoever owns that copyright owns that content. It's like the podcast we're creating. You're going to make money off of this podcast. Your kids are going to make money off this podcast. Their kids are going to make, and their kids and kids and kids and kids, generations down, will make money off of the content that we're creating right now. In the Nigerian space, until everything became digital, which happened much later, that was not a possibility. However, the outlook needed to be international. So we're spending U.S. budgets for returns that we couldn't generate in Nigeria. Does that make sense? Yep. So when I spent $20,000 to shoot a video in Nigeria, it looks good. It looks like the videos you see on MTV. But does it make financial sense from an investment standpoint? At the time, it didn't because the amount of streaming or the amount of ringtones or the amount of shows that I needed to do to recoup that money at the time didn't make it make sense. So when I have five brand new artists and I have to spend $100,000 promoting these artists and there's absolutely no stream that is guaranteed except for them to become popular and do shows, what will happen is I will spend 100 the first year, 100 the second year, 100 the third year before they get to the point where they can actually start really earning money. But then I got to recoup my 300, no? Mm. And usually what happens is because they're not making money the first year, the second year, by the third year, they're gone. Guess what I'm left with? $300,000 worth of debt that I can't pay back because the asset that I've basically created, <laughs> I no longer have control over. And there so, must be a solution for this, right? Because you're obviously talking about, you know, the dynamics between artists and labels back home, which right. is like artists come in two, three years into their contracts. Now where they're getting a little bit of popularity is like, you know, I don't want to share a percentage. I've paid my dues and the label is like, I have to recoup where I'm coming from and it's the whole thing. And they right. fight on social media and Linda IKG publishes it and everyone laughs and they go their separate ways. Right. Like it's a whole cycle. And someone's out of pocket. <laughs> someone is out of pocket. Someone is out of pocket. Um, 
But Tribe 2.0 was a very, like, it was interesting because the people you had there, like Aramide, you had SARS. Oh, my God. <laughs> SARS, uh, Aramide, Eva, uh, Ruckus, K9, all these people. And, and it was such a short window. It was like within like a year, a year and a half or two years, correct me if I'm Barely. Wrong. Yeah, barely. All these people came together and I was like, wow, these guys are the X-Men. Like, what's going to happen? And all of a sudden, it's like, there's this company called Iman. I was like, what? The model is buying tribe. Now what's going on? Is LD going into modeling? What the hell is going on? Like, <laughs> that was what I thought. I was like, what is Iman? Like, so uh, let me tell you. Let me tell you what that was. So basically what I realized was in order to do this the way that we needed to, we had to have capital. And we had to have capital that was willing to wait for the creation and development process. This is not like back in the day when you had like five artists on the radio and we all shared the airplay and everybody could kind of share the audience. There's a lot of competition now. There's thousands of artists struggling for the airtime. So now you need way more of an investment to actually stand out, right? So what I needed at the time was a partnership that brought in that investment. And in order to do that, I basically had conversations with capital groups and started talking to investors and basically had you know, back and forth with, oh, this guy, oh, I want to invest in this. And finally, we thought we found the right people to do the investment with. And that's pretty much the whole image. So we had to create a new entity. You thought you found the right people. What, thought we found the right sour? people. I mean, it, it, did, it did turn sour and very quickly. Was it a um, local group? Was it an international group? It was a local investors? group. It was a local mm. group um, with international um, um, investors as well. Not just local investors, but international investors as well. However, um, what they did was they basically just needed an entertainment entity to fulfill some other um, agenda that they had, right? So they promised the investment, but the investment never really came. So essentially everything that I was doing, I was doing out of, out of pocket mm -hmm. in the anticipation that, oh, you know what? This investment is coming. Some of it did come in the beginning. Just like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, let's, let's do this. Let's, we'll pay for this and we'll pay for that and we'll put this in place. And, and that's, I mean, those are the terms of the partnership, right? Is, hey, guys, we're going to do this. And I can't remember if it was a 50-50 or a 60-40. I think it was a 60-40, the new entity, and then Tribe. Mm. And, and I was, so I was part of the new entity and obviously also owned Tribe, right? But somehow Tribe was paying for everything and new entity was making promises. And a lot of things had been set up that was supposed to be supported by the infrastructure that we were putting in place. But then the funding never. Mm. Well, can you understand how maybe some of your artists, and I'm not saying this happened, or, you know, some players within the industry will point at you because you're the most visible person. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it, you're saying that, hey, you, I spent my money. I didn't get any investment from the these investor. guys who promised to do this. But what about your artists? Uh, how do you expect your artists to understand? I mean, what he'll think is that you took the money and instead of using it on us, you just went back to America. That yeah, doesn't... I mean, and there is that sentiment. Um, and the, the truth is, I never really had the conversation per se, because I didn't think it was necessary. I thought people were going to form whatever opinions that they wanted anyway. Hey, if you don't write your own history, man. So, right. here, so here's, my, here's what I think about that. It doesn't matter what people think. It matters what mm. actually happened. Mm. Because I'm not doing this to create an impression. I did it for the right reasons. I wasn't doing something bad. I wasn't, I didn't steal someone's money. You know what I'm saying? Like if I had, if I came in with a negative intention, then I would have a need to protect myself or protect my integrity. But I didn't. I came in 100% honest. 
here's what's going on. Here's what I need to do. Here's how it needs to work, right? Very early on, I catch on to the fact that, oh, these guys have played us or they're playing us rather. So it was one of, well, there were probably more than two options, but the two biggest options, one was for me to stay and try to save face and continue to spend money Mm. or two, walk away. It was a bad move at a bad time and I needed to end it early. And that's exactly what I did. So two things were actually a lot of things were happening at the same time. A lot of things were happening. One of the first things that was happening was I was getting to the point from a career standpoint where I felt like, you know what, I need to do something else. Actually, I had gotten to that point even before 2.0. So 2.0 was supposed to be like, okay, this is me just kind of setting something up and like walking away from it. Because so I was going to walk away anyway, right? The other thing that was happening was I was realizing very quickly based on the financial knowledge that I had acquired that the business model did not make sense in that environment. And the reason that I came to that conclusion is because we didn't have an addressable market at the time. Do you see and I the can ex- need? And I can explain that a little bit more to give some more clarity. So addressable business market. I'm creating a product that cost me a million dollars to make, but I can only sell it to a thousand people. Mm. How much do I need to sell this product to make my money back or make a profit? I have to sell it for a thousand bucks. Is it realistic to sell it for a thousand bucks? If it's not, then I don't have an addressable market. Does that make sense? And that at the time, sense. and at the time, it we didn't have it. It there was no we couldn't streaming was not an option at that time. It was something that was beginning to start. I think streaming really became a thing like 2015. This is 2010. No streaming, no iTunes, no Spotify. We did have music on there, but Nigerians couldn't buy it. Mm. Yeah, Nigerians outside those. of Nigeria could buy it. But how many, how many, how many I, are, I, I remember right? those. I remember the first time I saw MI on iTunes. I was like, what? Yeah. I mean, so, do you, th- do you think, um, and again, I'm not like saying, you know, you, you had anything to do with, you know, what happened or whatever. Um, but do you think for posterity's sake, it might not be on here, but you know, in a book or a documentary somehow that you address in detail, like what really happened just to give, you know, us the fans and maybe anybody who was part of the whole thing, just to, It'll give some clarity and closure to some right. people who might, might have been affected. Right. So, so the people who are close to it, I feel like they kind of already know the story. It depends on what version they choose to believe, right? And it's not in my, I don't feel like it's in my place to convince anyone, right? I'm going to tell my story. Um, and I have told this story a few times. I haven't put it on any public platforms, right? But I have told it a few times, right? And those who are close to me or close to the situation know. And I don't know that it's necessary for me to drag people in the mud mm-hmm. um, in, an, in, in an attempt to tell the story. Because again, mm-hmm. there has to be a goal. What's the goal of telling the story? Am I telling the story so that other people don't fall in the same trap? I've done that because there's an episode on my podcast where I actually explain this whole concept, right, of VCs and you know, venture capitalists and capital advisory companies taking advantage of SMEs and, and startups, right? So I've, ex- I've explained that. And that's what really it is. The next level is to name call, is to say, oh, so-and-so individual and so-and-so individual, you know, said that they were going to put up $4 million and ended up putting up $200,000, right? But that would be a necessary detail because at that point, what would be the goal? The only goal at that point is to rubbish someone which is unnecessary. Again, when I went into it, I didn't go into it with the intention of cheating someone. So I don't feel the need to clear my name. There's nothing to clear. You know what I'm saying? Got it. Got it. <laughs> so it's like, mm, oh yeah, I'm, you know, it might come in a book. It might, you know, but 
But I just feel like there's nothing else to say about it. There really isn't. It, it happens. Sometimes you, try, you, sometimes you try to do something. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. This was one doesn't. of the times when it didn't work. However, I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that's not the only reason why it didn't work. There were so many other things that were going on. As a matter of fact, I feel in some type of way that it's a blessing that the money never came because I was realizing when I started looking at the numbers that even what we had planned was not going to work. It would have been one of those stories where millions of dollars been worse. And mm. Exactly. Millions of dollars were spent and this and that and the other. And then somehow, some way it didn't materialize. And then the next generation figures out a better way to do it. Maybe when streaming becomes a thing. So now people can actually make residual and now labels can actually make a little bit of that money that they couldn't back in the day. Now the music gets on platforms where it's actually um, exploitable because that was the problem is there were really no ways to really exploit content at the time except tours and endorsements and you can't build a business model on tours and endorsements it has to you have to have other streams of income because there's nowhere else where it's set up that way (laughs) except in those markets but anyway yeah i mean talking about that you know kind of like exploiting like content and making sure that you diversify as a record label entertainment company you did also like try to set up play data which was like a novel idea and, you know, something that was much needed in the industry at the time, which it was like a broadcasting monitoring service. You set it up with uh, someone you went to high school with, uh, Kingsley, or for... I have a couple of questions about that first, because um, mm-hmm. I think at the time you were kind of like shuttling between the U.S. and Nigeria. Uh, I don't know to what extent you were involved in Play Data. I know you're a co-founder, but, you know, were you just involved in like getting the word out, marketing, or if you were involved in the actual tech or the service itself? That was my, it was my brainchild. Yeah. I actually came up with everything from the technology to the, oh. to the build out, to the design, to the, yeah. So I was, yeah. Oh, maybe in that case, you want to explain what Play Data is real fast? Let's hear from so, the so horse's mouth. It, uh, it it's, uh, it's a technology that allows you to identify audio within a stream. Mm. So it's like a fingerprinting technology, right? So when I, once I put a fingerprint on a particular audio piece, I can recognize it anywhere um, that it plays. So within a stream, if you played a song, I can identify the song. So it works kind of like Shazam. Mm. Um, but we were able to get some additional layers to the technology um, because we needed to monitor music in environments that are not quite as structured as the Western world. So in the Western world, you play music, it's easy to identify. It's rare that the speed of the music goes up or down. It's rare that you have layered music playing at the same time that you need to identify. It's rare that um, the music gets pitched because of some broad, some low quality broadcasting equipment. So those are some of the advancements that we were able to make um, to fingerprinting technology. And that was really, that's really the asset that Play Data has, right? Is that, and not only are we able to do it within just like audio streams, we can also do it with, um, with um, and, I, and identify um, and convert and do like text conversions as well. So from that, it expands extends to being able to actually do sentiment monitoring, right? Um, It extends to, there's so many uses, you know, for the technology, right? And Play Data, the broadcast monitoring product was just one of the products that the technology is actually able to um, be leveraged for, right? Um, And what we did was when we created that, I thought, you know what, this could immediately solve a problem. And this problem is in Nigeria right now. And this is one of the challenges that I was talking about when I was speaking about an addressable market, right? Is if we got paid for the plays we got on radio, starting from just that, 
everybody would be okay. All the musicians that had music that was popular would be okay. But we weren't getting played for paid for radio. The only way to do that is to force the hands of the people who are not paying to pay because they're making money, but they're not breaking bread. They're using the music to sell advertising, but they're not paying for the music, right? Mm. So if we figure out a way to independently verify and validate the number of times they play all of these songs, then it can, one, influence royalty payments, and two, become evidence that you can use in court as to how much you're actually owed in royalties. So that was a problem that I figured, hmm, you know what, this could solve this problem. So why don't we try to leverage this um, in order to solve the problem? But here's what happens when you get to Nigeria. You get to Nigeria and you put up an idea like this and you say, hey guys, I think I have the solution for this problem. And then you realize that the people that you're trying to solve the problem for don't want the problem solved. Mm -hmm. Case in point, the Copyright Society. Went up to the Copyright Society and I said to them, I say, hey, listen, I have a thing that I just put together, my friend and I, and we want to give it to you guys for free. Take it. This is my contribution. So Playdata wasn't like a, oh, let me build this thing and become a, a gazillionaire off of it. No, this is just, that's a good idea. This is a nice technology. It'll solve a problem and it'll move the needle far forward from where we were. Yes, I have quit and I'm not going to necessarily leverage this right now, but I think someone can use this and this can actually be advantageous to the entire ecosystem, the music ec ecosystem, right? Not but only- Do you still have access to the technology right now? It's my technology now. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just saying, because obviously it can be used. And, you know, maybe if I, if I want to come license it from you, maybe. <laughs> uh, no. So, and, and there are conversations about potentially licensing it to a bunch of different people. We have done that, actually. There are a couple of mm. people who use it right now in the white label capacity, right? Um, okay. Where we just provide the technology and then they do their marketing for whatever product it is that they're doing, whether it's sentiment monitoring, whether it's... Um, um, intelligence monitoring, um, whether it's, you know, music monitoring, advertising, adver uh, advert monitoring, whatever the, the case may be, like people have their, their various uses for this, right? Um, and whoever is interested in the technology, obviously is welcome to try to, is, is welcome to come and license it. We're wide, wide open for that. I'm having those discussions every day. But I think what I was, one thing I wanted to point out is that it's very frustrating when you try to solve a problem especially for Nigeria, and you hit the kind of roadblock. I saw a video circulating the other day about a guy who was trying to build this whole health facility and how he basically was told, oh, he needed to know Jonathan, otherwise it wouldn't come to fruition, mm -hmm. right? And then, you know, the whole thing fell apart. That's similar to the Playdata story. The crazy mm -hmm. thing about Playdata is we weren't asking anybody for money. That's actually the crazy part is we said, take out of here. and use it. Mm -hmm. It's free. Go, run. And they basically right. thought that, it would bring so much transparency that it would render them administrators and they didn't like that. Yeah. I mean, I can totally relate. And, you know, we'll wrap up the podcast, but I have a personal question because, you know, I also have obviously uh, hopes of, you know, going back home and implementing some things I've seen in the finance industry. I, I believe that, you know, with my experience in banking, you know, partner up with some people in technology here, we're going to obviously do something back home. But, you know, my brother keeps telling me the same thing. You're telling me that, hey, look, are they ready for this thing? Like, what were some of the unique experiences going back 
to start something like were you sh- shuttling between uh the u.s and nigeria to do play data uh, mm-hmm. were people not taking you serious because they, they said oh this is just one returnee trying to do this yes we know him as ld but it's just some returnee trying to do this oh their vested interest in the industry and they're blocking you what are some of those unique experiences you can share for tons of people in the diaspora who might have hopes of you know going to do some kind of startup so this is my perspective right and this is entirely my opinion so you know feel free to interpret how you like for anyone who's listening but my in my experience you can force camels to the river but you can't force them to drink right and a lot of times when we're in this structured environment the things that we wish for um and and hope that we can implement back home aren't possible and the reason they're not possible is because you can't have structure in the midst of chaos. And even inside of chaos, there is structure. So I guess it's different types of structure, right? So the structure here is there's a lot of trust and there's a lot of um, focus, deliberate focus on transparency, deliberate focus on fairness, deliberate focus on equality, deliberate focus on um, merit on merit. Things are built based on trust. This is not to say that it's 100% accurate or successful or that way all the time. Maybe maybe 60-75% at least, right? On the other side, it's a different type of structure. It's chaos. It's jungle justice. It's it's dog eat dog. It's it's a complete opposite. So when you try to take things from here and copy paste, it never works, right? The play data idea to speak of specific examples, when I took it to an executive in the marketing industry, I said to him, I have a tool. With this tool, I can save you 2 billion naira, which is about one fourth of your annual budget. Won't mention the brand, right? One fourth of your annual budget. I can save you 25% of your budget annually, just because I know for a fact from having tracked and monitored for like a year that you're losing at least 25% of your ad spend. And you know what he told me? He said that 25% goes trickling into the system. If I get in the way of that 25% from going to wherever it goes today, I will be depriving Nigerians. When he said it, it sounded stupid. And I was like, what the hell is this man talking about? I just told you. And he says Nigerians. I I, I think I know what he means. (laughs) And and. And, and it took, it took actually almost about a year or, or so after that for me, like sit down and really try to analyze what he meant and what he was mm. actually trying to say. And it kind of started to make sense. It's just a different way of working. Things aren't based on merit. Money comes top down. All of those gaps that we're trying to close is actually how a lot of the money gets into the system. When you stop people from stealing oil money, it impacts the people at the bottom. When you stop people from stealing all the political money, it impacts the people at the bottom. This is not to say that that's the right way, but that's the structure. So when you take anything to an environment like that, expect resistance because it's not going to fit within the same um, construct of what you're seeing on the Western side. It's totally different. The mindset's different. The environment is different. The problems are unique. And it's really, really challenging to solve. And you also have to remember, and, and, uh, and I'll wrap it up in a second, you have to remember that it takes more than one mind for you to shift these things. It's difficult to have all of these fancy ideas that you're taking to a place where people don't even understand what it is that you're trying to do with them. Mm-hmm. So not to discourage anyone, but you always have to think about that. You have to have know clarity. what you're getting yourself into. You have to have clarity. Okay. Very important. Okay. I've seen people who've done it and they're successful because they found a niche 
that makes sense and isn't as disruptive. But when you have game changers, when you're a disruptor, mm-hmm. that's a very challenge to be. <laughs> I remember what happened with the fintech boys. The fintech boys came up from all over the world. Yeah. Oh man, fintech. We're going to go and do fintech in Nigeria. And one day mm-hmm. someone just decided, hey, you know what? If you want to do fintech in Nigeria, you have to have a base of 5 billion. Let's start from that. <laughs> and that just put everybody out the game. Yeah. Because, you know, because it's Nigeria. That can happen. You couldn't do that anywhere else in the world, but you can do it in Nigeria. So anyway. Yeah. I mean, I totally understand. That's all. And I appreciate you being, you know, so candid about the situation. What's next for LD? I know, you know, you kind of uh, do some real estate now. Like, what are you doing right now? And what should we expect, say, in the coming three, four, five years? Uh, should we look forward to Tribe 3.0? What's going to go on? <laughs> Are you going to come out of re- retirement for the yeah, second uh, time or third time? What's, what's going to happen? What should we expect? So, so I, don't, I don't think that I'm going to make any music that's just being... Uh, at all? You don't have the itch at all? No, I don't think so. So, what if your daughter? I mean, what if Tammy becomes a rapper or a singer? That could be something. And and I, the the honest truth is, I don't think Tammy would want me to be involved if she was making music, <laughs> because <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> they already they already think I'm not I'm not cool. So, oh, uh, LD you know, is not cool. They, they think my kids think oh, I'm not cool. They're like, uh, you know. Sometimes I make jokes and I'm playing around. Like, listen. LD was there when we're being forced to listen to Sonia Okoso and someone. I mean, no no disrespect, but you know, LD. They're like, uh, yeah. I tell them, I was like, yo, do you guys know that I'm kind of a rock star? And they're like, hmm, whatever. Yeah, I've seen Have the video. Have they been to Nigeria? Too. Have they been back? The, um, my Tammy has. Token, not not so, not at all, actually. Maybe they need to experience people literally walking up to you and taking selfies before they understand. They see that once in a while here. That happens oh. like, you know, there's like that one off we're in Walmart and then someone just, you know, it's like, oh my God, you know, yeah, can I take a picture or whatever? Um, but they still, they're just like, mm, yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, it kind of is. A th- so I don't think Tammy's going to want me to make her music. But, you know, back to the point is I can't, I don't see myself making music um, mm. at professionally, at least. I might do it like just for fun. But I don't see what if all those structures come in place and everything you've been fighting for like comes into the industry and you can actually start monetizing your catalog and everything? Like, would you produce new music the only or reason, you just rely on your old catalog? The only reason I would be producing music at that point is because I want to make money. So, but I'm already making money. So I don't need the music to make the money. Therefore, the music would not be enough motivation. Like money wouldn't be enough of the motivation for me to make the music. Even right now, I could make music doing, I could make money off of music. Yeah. But like I said, in 2010, what I realized is if I can spend a dollar and make 10, why should I spend a dollar and make two? Mm. So basically all the money that I put into Tribe 2.0 probably would have been better used if I put it into like pure water business. <laughs> pure water business. No, 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 I'm serious. <laughs> like I'm not even, I'm not even playing. Like if I took all of that money and set up pure water plants in Lagos, I would have made a ton more than trying mm. to do music. But it took me growing up. It took me getting to the point where I really understood money, what I, when I understood capital, when I understood assets and investments and, 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 and really how to make money to get to the mm. point where I realized that, oh boy, if money is the goal, then this is not the way. It has LD, to be. please don't leave us, man. Don't leave us. Nah. Don't leave. I know you're mature now. You have a family. You're thinking about returns and all that. But so many, let, maintain no. just a little bit of foolishness, just a little bit. But sometimes <laughs> when you're foolish and naive, that's when you try to change things. But you know what? You're right. And you're right. You're right. 
see, the, the purpose, you know, back to what I was saying earlier is there has to be something that's driving it, right? So play data, I felt like there was a problem I was trying to solve. With the music, there was always some kind of goal, right? Right now, the only goal with music would be to make money. There's no other goal. There's nothing else I'm trying to do. What about legacy? Uh, and not to say, you know, you don't have legacy in the Nigerian music industry, but, you know, with the popularity of Afrobeats why, now, why do I you need can... That? What do I need that for? Like, what am I going to use that for? I don't know. Fair enough. Fair enough. My kids don't think I'm cool. So I'm like, yeah, so, okay. So then I have my, uh, what? I have a, I have a monument somewhere. Like, it, the, the thing is, I am here and everyone has a purpose at some point in their lives that they need to fulfill. And once you fulfill that purpose, then you should move on to go fulfill another purpose. I was, I had the privilege of being there at the time and being able to contribute the way that I did. But I feel like it would have happened regardless, right? Maybe through some other vessel. So I'm actually feeling privileged to have been that vessel. But my point is, I'm not now going to stay there and say, ah, since I've done this, this is my thing. I don't own it. I never felt like I owned it. Mm -hmm. So I don't feel like it's something that I owe my life to. I don't owe my life to it. Like mm -hmm. I owe my life to myself. And I have to, at any point in time, continue to do things that help me feel fulfilled. Like I need to be fulfilled above, above all else. Yes, I understand there's a need to satisfy a certain urge that maybe I've created, but other people can fill that void. I don't have to mm -hmm. fill it. Orna Boy can fill the void. David O can fill the void. You know what I'm saying? Whiskey can fill the void. And they're doing a fantastic job at it. No, I don't even mean as an artist. I just mean as, uh, you know, just but a participant of something. Here's sort. the thing, though. Here's the thing. Right now, so my wife has been in real estate mm. pretty much even before we left Nigeria, right? Um, she worked for the Newtowns Development Agency. She's been in real estate. She's done renovations. She's built. She's done all kinds of things, right? Moved over to the States, continued her real estate business. Always wanted me to hop in on the real estate side of things, but I, I, never, I never found it interesting, right? At some point a couple of years ago, I started kind of just taking a look at it when I, when I had downtime, you know? Started looking, I was like, hmm, you know what? I see opportunity here. And then the other thing too is when you learn, as you learn about money, you begin to understand some of the places where your money is safest, right? Considering how crazy and volatile the world is, right? And real estate is one of those places. So it prompted me to, to really, and I started reading a ton of books, right? And everything was pointing at real estate, real estate, real estate, real estate, real estate. So I was like, okay, you know what? Maybe I am sleeping on real estate. Maybe I need to actually turn on my real estate. It's like, hell, I'm an architect. So I already have a lot of advantages, right? Why don't we see what this holds? And, and behold, we find this little niche, we jumped right in, and we're doing amazing things, right? Things that I never would have thought possible five years ago, we're doing today. I feel that this is me in another state of creation again, yet again. And I feel that I all, baby. <laughs> so this, so, so when you talk about 3.0, this could be 3.0. And the reason I say that is a lot of the stuff that we're learning and putting in place right now People are going to leverage. People are going to leverage the knowledge. People are going to leverage the opportunity. And it may actually, in fact, especially for folks like you who live in the U.S., it may actually become a whole new system that as Africans or Nigerians um, that we can leverage in this economy. Okay. So there is something okay. that's brewing on that path as well. So there's always something. So There's always something. Okay, that's always here. <laughs> That's good to hear. So retirement is not retirement. Okay, cool. Yeah. Retirement from music. <laughs> from, from music. Not retirement from, from you know, from life. Life. Exactly. Okay. 
Okay, yeah, man. I appreciate you, you know, taking out time to talk to me today. I have a couple of questions uh, I ask at the end of my podcast. Usually it'll be about, you know, getting to know someone more, but I have questions, you know, dug out from the rumor mill. I think some of my listeners will want me to ask you and hopefully you can provide uh, a non-PC answer, but uh, we'll, see how this, <laughs> we'll see how this goes. Are you ready? Sure. Okay, first question. Uh, is it true that Olumentain tried to pass off your hit single Big Boy as his own a couple of years ago? That is correct. As a matter of fact, from the very beginning, he did try to do that. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, well, he, he actually went and printed, when the song was recorded, I gave him like a rough copy and he went and made, he printed out CDs that he was going to start distributing and he had Olumentain Big Boy on it. On it. it was one wow. of the DJs that got it that called me. I was like, uh, yeah, I think this dude's about to jack you. <laughs> And there was an agreement when you guys recorded it that this is your song. Agreement. Right? The song like was a... already done. He was the last person to on. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> the song was already done. He was the last person to get on it. Is that a reason why there wasn't a video for Big Boy? Because I always that was part of the reason. You don't imagine how many like videos I enacted in my head to how Big, big Boy you tear over everything, almost everything. I had a whole scene for that. <laughs> so. <laughs> but it's all good though it's all good yeah. uh, so 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 yeah so that that was in fact the case and then recently um i mean he kind of went on that same um path again and and then we met in lagos and he tried to he tried to just play some really silly childish games which was oh, why wait, I does that mean you guys haven't made up um we're not fighting i just called him out mm. that mean? i don't I don't keep malice with anybody. I don't even remember him when I, I'm not even thinking about him. So, it, I mean, it's just one of those things where I, we can have a disagreement, right? Yeah. But I will not like keep it somewhere. I have to let it out right there and then. That's the kind of Got person it. I am. And once I let it out, that's it. So it. I called him out then and shit, still, I'm sticking to what I, what I said. Yeah. Okay. Second question. Is it true that there's an unreleased diss track for freestyle floating around somewhere in the ether? No, no, there is the... no un- there is no unreleased disc. Mr. Dabry. <laughs> there, is, there is no unreleased disc for freestyle. And I think I, I want to use this opportunity to also um, clear a bit of that. So there's, there was a lot of negative energy. And I feel like most of the negativity came from, from the outside, not from, mm. from, from within. So even the things that we disagreed on came from external influences, um, you know, to freestyle saying, oh, this is what's happening. You should do this instead and blah, 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 blah. And these guys taking advantage of you and things like that. Right. Um, which, you know, led to all kinds of different things and then character differences as well. Right. However, as we've grown up, I've understood how to deal with you know, various characters and he's, he is who he is and I am who I am. And I think we've accepted that maybe if both of us were a little bit more patient, then tribesmen could have become a a bigger thing. Right. But it's also part of learning, right. It's part of growing up and we're really cool right now. I was at Freestyle's wedding. Yeah. I can almost even say I was his best man. I think I'm able to say I was his best man for his wedding. You know what I'm saying? Like, Mm. We, 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 ha- we talk, you know what I'm saying? We can relate on a lot of things. And one of the last conversations we had, I actually told him, and he was telling me, he was like, man, there's so much, like if people knew that we had this type of relationship, a lot of the negativity that's out there would actually just dissipate. So that's I'm okay. hoping that yeah. I could use this opportunity to tell everyone, me and Freestyle are cool. Hey, maybe right. you can put me in touch with him. I'd love to have an interview with him. Sure. Uh, last question. Uh, so question two and a half. You actually, do you understand Yoruba House and Igbo? Are you multilingual in that sense? Um, I understand Igbo, I can't speak it, but I definitely can speak Yoruba and Hausa fluently. Got it. 
Got it. Okay, well, last question. So there, there was a point in your career, and I guess I still see this, like you have that burning desire in you. You know, a lot of Nigerians just grow up and give up. Uh, I mean, you had songs like uh, Mia Goyan. Uh, you had one day, occasionally you tweet about stuff, you talk about the state of affairs in the industry, the state of affairs in the country. Mm. Do you see yourself after you've amassed all this wealth and, you know, things like that, do you see yourself giving back to your people in that sense, in going back and trying to participate? And when I say participate, I don't mean necessarily politically. It might be politically, but in a sense, trying to participate to give back to your people. I feel like I've given enough. Mm. I feel like I've given enough. I feel like, um, man, I have done way more than I get credit for, Mm. for Nigeria. I I feel like I've done way more for Nigeria than Nigeria has actually done for me. Facts. And as you grow, as you grow older and you learn more about life and, and, and purpose, you realize that everyone's here as a part or a piece of the overall puzzle. I feel like I played my part already in putting out the music that I put out when I put it out in doing all of the tribesmen stuff with Afrobeats, which give, has given us the only positive identity that we have right now. Mm. Um, I feel like I've contributed in ways like that. I don't think that I make a good politician because I don't know how to see things white and call them black. I always say things like they really are. And to be a good politician, you have to know how to lie and you know you have to know how to bend the truth. So I don't feel like I would play well in that space, right? Mm-hmm. Also, I've I understand how systems work now. So I realized that a lot of the things that I was asking for from Nigeria were coming from a place of naivety. I was mm-hmm. being naive um because I didn't really understand how the system worked. In 2011, I cannot remember that experiment. We went out to um the biggest local government in Lagos State. Um I think it's what's it called again? Um uh, no, the largest legal, local government in Lagos oh, State. Oh, Alimosho. 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 There you go. So we went to Alimosho and we went around. Um, it was Banky and I and a reporter from CNN. I think it was Christian Purefoy, I think. Um, and we went around and we talked to people and we were trying to get a perspective of what the people thought the issues were, right? These are the voters, right? And I realized very quickly um, even though I had a completely different opinion at the time, I realized very quickly that um, we were fighting a losing battle. And the reason we were fighting a losing battle is you can't, you can't teach someone to solve a problem that they don't even realize exists. Exists. Hmm. So the things that I'm fighting for, the average Nigerian doesn't care for because they don't even realize that that exists. Hmm. So if is it, it conditioning? What what's the? I mean, it's it's, it's just it's, the way it's, the society it's just, is. It's not just conditioning. It's just it's just um, well, I guess it is conditioning. It's a little bit of that, but I think it's more just. Um, and and I'll pull in some philosophy right here now. It's just like a hierarchy of needs type situation, right? Where mm. people can't think beyond, you know, hunger, physiological needs. Mm. If they don't have those things, you don't have you know shelter, place to sleep, food to eat, water to drink. So you can't think about like that next level. What I'm talking about is like two levels up on that hierarchy of needs. When people like you and I are talking about electricity as the issue, what we're thinking about is imagine if there was electricity, how much productivity you will have, how much more, you know, um, useful the young people in the country will be, how much more um, communication could happen, how much more of a network we could build, how much more we could leverage the volume of 
I mean, I mean the, the, the masses that we have in the country. Mm. When people, the average Nigerian, I'm talking 90% now, or maybe even 95% of Nigerians, when they think about electricity, all they can think about is light and then mm. not sleeping in without a fan. Mm. We're thinking of completely different wavelengths, right? Mm. So it's hard for me to sell you if you don't understand what I'm asking for. It's difficult. I can't, all I can do is say, hey, this isn't great. And then you'll agree with me that, yeah, it's not great, but the motivation is different. Different. I'm trying to figure out ways that we can put things in place that will allow the entire system to function. And I realize that the initial issue is we have to solve those basic needs, but the people don't realize that the basic needs are the problem. When you go to people and you say, hey, would you rather have electricity or let me give you 5K right now? Right now. Right now. I'm going to give you 5,000 naira right now, or I'll give you electricity for the rest of your life. They're going to opt for 5K right now. Mm -hmm. And if you have a system like that, it's going to be very difficult. When I hear about people trying to start revolutions, people trying to start movements, people trying to start, you know, it's, you can't start a movement when people are hungry. People need mm. energy. You can't ask people to go, you know, chop off someone's head if they haven't, they, they need, bro, I never chopped this morning now. Give me mm. something to make a chop best. You see what I'm saying? I so basically, it. I say all of that to say that I realized that I was fighting a losing battle. And oh. I, feel like, I feel like I have given what I can give. And I mm. think that other folks can take it from here. Right now, yeah. I'm about my kids. I'm about my family. I'm about, family. I'm about building something that can allow me to share in other ways, in ways that I think could be influential. Maybe if you and I were wealthy enough to step in and make the changes that we needed to make, maybe that could be another way that I get to contribute, but definitely not as directly as most people are asking. I mean, I can see my brother's face right now when he listens to this episode because <laughs> he thinks like you, like we have these fights all the time. I'm still somewhat of an optimist, although I'm not as much of an optimist as I was 10 years ago, but it's still there. Maybe when I become, I'm 31 now, so maybe when I become like 36, 37, I'll be like totally at your level, right? But I still have a smidge, like 20% in me that, oh, well, he is like older than me. So it's like, dude, guy, I don't need to tell you this, this is money. Don't go forget all this. Thing, but, nah, for real. Um, for real. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, regardless of what happens, uh, just inspiring people like me and me going on to inspire somewhere else, even if it's not our generation, I think you've really played your part in that regard. And I really appreciate you for that. Even though Nigeria doesn't appreciate you enough, uh, I personally I thank you so much for all you've done. Um, is Banky your cousin? Are you guys related, by the way? <laughs> no, we're not. No, okay, we're not. Cool. His, his dad's from Lagos. My dad's from Lagos, but we're not. We're not related. No, okay, okay. I just decided to get that out of the way because of the Banky story. Um, yeah, thank you for coming on the podcast. Is there anything you wanna? say that you haven't said uh, do you have a specific question for me do you want to i mean I, I will plug links to your podcast and everything but is there if there's anything you want to plug if you want to you know, um nothing nothing really nothing really but to just, just say thank you right mm -hmm. thank you for an opportunity to chronicle my thoughts at this moment um and i recognize that how i feel may change over time um mm -hmm. the way that i felt 20 years ago and the way that i felt 10 years ago and the way that i felt even five years ago Maybe different from how I feel right now, but I, I like the opportunity to chronicle and I feel like this is going to live forever somewhere in some archive. Please mm -hmm. make sure that it stays up um, so that we can share these perspectives. Because like you said, 
um, sometimes during the, pro- the podcast, one of the things that we don't do enough of is we don't chronicle events. And I feel like it gives a good perspective of the past, which really helps us understand the future. So thanks. Thanks for the opportunity. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. Uh, you guys can follow Culture Class Podcast everywhere. It's Culture Class Podcast on Instagram and on Facebook. It's Culture Class Pod on Twitter. Uh, send us an email, culturalclasspodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you think. And yeah, stay safe, wash your hands, and be well. Peace.